You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste, James Bond Retrospective. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Join Garrett, Matt, and Adam as they open 007's Confidential Files and review all of the agent's cinematic adventures. Mr. Bond is indeed a very rare breed, soon to be made extinct. From Sean Connery first getting the Walther PPK to Daniel Craig's possible swan song to the series, the boys dissect what makes Bond popular and the possibilities of where the story can go next. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. So sit back, open a Heineken, and shake that dry martini. I can think of something more sensible to do. James Bond's much-deserved binge media retrospective begins now. So you put your money where your mouth is. No Time to Die, released October 8th, 2021. Budget was reported at 250 to 301 million. Current box office take of 313.3. And this Bond film was directed by Kerry Fukunaga. Boys, we have reached the top of the mountain. After all the delays and all the punts and the 26 movies we did beforehand, we're at the last Bond movie, the most current Bond movie. It's been over a year and a half since we recorded this fucking thing last time. This is Matt Gaudreau. So excited to have you back here for this this movie in particular, because this franchise means a lot to me. And it's always ecstatic for me to go see a Bond film in the theaters. But speaking of theatrical viewings, that brings me to my co-hosts. First of all, coming back once again, the always reliable Garrett Collins. Matt, let me ask, is this the most anticipated review that we have ever done? I know we've done anticipated reviews before, but since we started this so fucking long ago, is this the most anticipated, yes or no? Yes, and I don't think it's close. I don't think it is either. But we got to introduce our third co-host because every duo needs a, uh, we need our own cue, yes. Adam. Hello, hello, everybody. Just like Money Penny, I'm back. Looking pretty behind the desk and ready to go. Well, speaking of looking pretty, we have reached something that has not happened since GoldenEye. We have a six-year gap between the last movie, Spectre, and this current one. Now, obviously, there were circumstances in the world that caused that delay, but there's a, quite a bit of production history we have to go over before we talk about this actual movie that has nothing to do with COVID. So, where to begin? After Spectre, a lot of us thought Craig was done, because that movie ends with him going off into the sunset with Madeline Swan. Regardless of how we felt about the movie personally, three of us didn't care for it ourselves, it acted as sort of a logical conclusion, and I was shocked when I heard Craig was coming back for a fifth movie. Now, with that said, Sam Mendes, who did the previous two films, said he was done, and then Christopher Nolan's name was brought up. Once again, because of course it is with any new project. He said, nope, I, I'm working on a Bond-like movie, which turned out to be Tenet. And then there were a couple of other directors thrown out. Denis Villeneuve, David McKenzie. Villeneuve said no because he was committed to Dune. I am so glad we did not get 
a Bond Villeneuve film. I'm sorry. I know he is really liked around these parts. I find his films laborious. They would have been worse than fucking Sam Mendes, for Christ's sake. Nothing goes together as far as banality than Denis Villeneuve and a Dune movie. That is cinematic NyQuil, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe it'll be good. That comes out relatively soon. So, yeah, let's let's talk about Boyle. He was confirmed to be directing the movie. And for me, as a massive Danny Boyle fan, I would have been ecstatic to see his take on it. Because much more than Mendez, you talk about someone who knows what the fuck they're doing behind the camera and has done every kind of genre imaginable. He is the closest thing we have to Stanley Kubrick, in my estimations, as far as his flexibility. But Boyle's films are always distinctly his. Even his adaptations. Let's not forget, he did the both train spotting movies. He did Millions, I think, is based on a children's book. But he's, he's a very flexible filmmaker. But he's always been his own man. And I think there would have been a lot of decisions that he would have had to fight for. And that's probably why he left the project. Yeah, right before she wasn't there only like two or three months. Like, every, like the production schedule was locked down. It was a last-minute replacement to get... We got on here. Yeah, it was February 2018. He was hired. And Danny Boyle brought on John Hodge, who's his close collaborative screenwriting partner. That basically was Boyle's pitch to Broccoli and Michael Wilson. He gave his pitch. They loved it. They commissioned John Hodge to write the screenplay. But in doing so, they scrapped the Purvis and Wade script. That was thrown aside. And then the production date was December 2018. But Boyle and Hodge officially left in August 2018. The rumor was that the sticking point was the villain casting. Apparently, Danny Boyle threw out an actor by the name of Tomas Cott, but Boyle himself declined that. He said there were complications and discussions in the screenwriting process that ultimately caused him to leave the project. So what we call in the filmmaking world creative differences. Wow, I don't know, man. I would have liked to have seen it. Me as well. But once he left, it was like, oh shit, what did we do? Because apparently they had 60 days to find a replacement before production shut down altogether and whatnot. So Fukunaga was announced as the new director. First American to direct a Bond movie, and also the first director to receive a writing credit for his script. Now, apparently Fukunaga was considered for Spectre in the interim where Mendez was not sure if he was coming back. So he was someone that they had their eye on for a while. But let's talk a little bit about Fukunaga, what he's known for. Big One's True Detective Season 1, which, phenomenal piece of television. His film career is a little bit more niched. He did a movie called Sinobre, which is a, you know, it's a Spanish movie, his adaptation of Jane Eyre, and he did Beasts of No Nation with Idris Elba. Beasts of No Nation, yeah. And he was originally going to direct Stephen King's It. He was confirmed to be directing and left that project over scripting issues, but still got a writing credit. Um, so he's very respected in the industry. I was let down, not going to lie, when Boyle stepped aside, but I thought this was a... This did not strike me as a Ron Howard directing Han Solo thing, where they're just going to tell him, point the camera, say action, and stick to the script. Yeah, this isn't a yes man like we got in a Disney camp. This is a guy that still at least has some has some artistic credibility behind him. And let me say this about this decision. When we did this retrospective, boys, when we first started doing this, years and years ago, it seems, I was not looking forward to this movie. I honestly wasn't. Like, I was just like, okay, we're going to finally do away with the Craig era. Let's finally finish this fucking thing. I agreed to do this retrospective. We're going to go. Let's do this. But closer this got, and I realized that, okay, we have this director who has this fresh vision. I'm not going to have any of the Sam Mendes, arty farty shit in my face anymore. I'm going to have a director with a big vision, and we're going to do something new and different with this franchise. Fuck. 
I was getting really excited the closer this got. I thought Fukunaga was a really inspired choice. It just hit me as it was coming closer. Fuck, that we're going to get this Bond movie without Sam Mendes anywhere close to it. Let's fucking do it. So let, let's talk a little bit about our thoughts going into the movie based on the marketing and things, because obviously COVID caused this movie to be delayed numerous times. The title was announced in 2019. There were all the reports about actors coming back. We were getting a new 007, which of course, because it's a black woman, set the internet on proverbial flames <laughs> on top of numerous other things. But all things being as they are, my perspective going into this movie, having seen all the marketing, they had to do a lot of heavy lifting to recoup the sins of Spectre, if you will, in my estimations. As I talked about on that show, there was a lot of creative missteps that I disagreed with. I think they botched Blofeld completely, making him his brother and all oh, that God. nonsense. So they had to do a lot to win me back. And let's not forget, with the exception of George Lazenby, who did one movie, regardless of how we feel, no other Bond has gotten a real proper send-off, if you know what I mean. Everyone's done their last movie and kind of bowed out. Connery did it twice, yeah. technically. This was the first one we knew. Craig said, I am definitively done. And we also knew, because of the continuity, this was going to be the final piece of a five-film arc. When Brosnan did die another day, I think it was still in his head that he was going to do another one after that. So, yeah, this was going to be a proper send-off. That's a great point, Matt. I didn't even think about it like that. Adam, I remember talking to you in our chat, and you said flat out, the more time is passing, the less I care about this movie. So, so, so <laughs> what is the opposite of me? Yeah, we've been joking for a year and a half that this movie's never going to come out. Yeah. Once you were like 24 hours out, because I said to myself, for the record, I've seen this movie three times in preparation. I saw it with Christian opening night, and he said, are you excited to see this? I'm like, I will be once I actually sit down in the theater. And I see the gun barrel because I'll know I'm actually watching a new Bond movie. I'm like, I'm not going to believe it until I fucking see it myself. But Adam, you were the, the ultimate Bond villain yourself. You were a skeptic going in. Yep. Were you still that way when you sat down? You know, the amazing thing was for the last eight days, I've been on vacation after some turmoil in my personal life and then coming home to go, oh, man, I got to go see a Bond movie. God damn it. That's right. I got to finish. Oh, damn. I got to go see this Bond movie. I've only seen the trailers once or twice. I have amazingly enough not heard the theme song until I sat down. So I've avoided quite a bit. And then I listened to our, our Daniel Craig pods to kind of refresh myself. I watched Skyfall again because I feel like that's at least the beginning part of this. And I couldn't even bring myself to watch Spectre again <laughs> to get in the mood for this one. I just, I couldn't do it. So I was not excited, but I've not been excited since it, it, it's been quite a while since I've been excited for a Bond movie just because I feel they've been diminishing returns since Craig's first. And you can go back to our last few to talk about that. So I was just wondering if it was going to continue to nosedive or like so many Bond openings, are we going to pull up the plane to the last minute and sail off into the sunset? Before you ride off into the sunset, let's not forget the biggest question mark for me was the runtime. It was reported, you know, uh, this movie clocked in a damn near three hours. And that's a lot to ask of an audience. Even me as yep. a big Bond fan, I was like, okay, all the Craig films have run over two hours except for Quantum. That one is sort of an ultimate outlier. And I've had varying personal perspectives on how long the movies feel. Like Spectre, I felt it. Casino Royale and Skyfall, I do not. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was more willing to give this a pass. And also because this movie had a lot riding on it. And there was so much to wrap up to where I said, as long as I don't feel the runtime, I'm not going to bring myself to complain. No great movie is too long and no bad movie is too short. <laughs>
Yeah, that was a deterrent for me. I got to say, that was a big deterrent, especially since, you know, Adam, you mentioned that you weren't going to go back to Spectre. That was the one fucking movie I watched in preparation for this movie was Spectre. So, you know, my anticipation was high, but then after I watched that, I'm like, God, how is he going to fucking rescue this? Go back to that podcast and listen. None of us liked that movie at all. I was just like, fuck, is there any way he could actually, as you guys say, pull that plane up? Because that movie... God, open a window because it fucking stank. <laughs> All right. I, I, I think we have to get into this movie now, but I need to preface everything we're about to say by saying we preach this a lot. Please see the movie before you listen to this review, because we talk about yes. every single detail. Because I know this this retro in particular has gotten a lot of new eyes and new ears on our site. We typically do retros. You know, it's not very often where we do new movies. So I just want to put that disclaimer out. Spoilers galore. We're going to talk about every piece of this movie possible, so I'll give you thank three you, seconds thank, to thank turn off. Yeah, thank you for that disclaimer. And let me just say, before we get going, Matt, that Craig's Bond, it just has not been as smooth, has it? You know, Matt, you're going through the history of this production. I think back, and Bronson always had, like, smooth productions. And his movies came in, like, at two or three-year intervals. Craig has one more film in eight more years. Very bizarre <laughs> stat. I was hoping, I'm like, God, is he going to go out on a high... <laughs> All right. So I don't know what your guys' theatrical experience was, but here's mine. So obviously my chick wasn't going to go to this. There was no way. So I went by myself to this movie. And I usually get when you go to the IMAX screening, they have ILJ, which is, you know, they have that railing right there. And as you guys know, I'm a big dude. I like to put my legs up. So I took literally like the second from the inside aisle. OK, I'm sitting here and the, I had a movie three quarters full. All right. The only road that was completely taken was mine. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there, and these people are going right past me during the most tense scene of the movie, by the way, which we'll talk about <laughs> here in a little bit. The very beginning scene, these people are going by me. And at one point, the very last guy, who's already three sheets to the fucking wind, he's got a beer in his hand. He looks at me and spills three quarters of it on me. Oh, fuck. I didn't have popcorn on me because I had taken my mom to the Sopranos movie the day before. So I was like, okay, I've had my fill of popcorn. I'm good on that. So thank God for that. All I had were peanut M&Ms and a fucking icy. But I looked at this dude. I'm like, just fucking move on before you get thrown off this railing. All right. I'm sorry. I had to get that in. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, he turned into James Bond yelling at that guy. So the movie opens with the gun barrel sequence, but no blood drip down. That's a first of the series. Because it pans directly into this beautiful white landscape where we are introduced not to James Bond. This is actually a flashback to a young Madeline Swan who is living in this house, taking care of her mother. Because for those of you who don't remember, Mr. White's her father, Spectre agent. So he's probably out on some mission on Blofeld's behalf. We see her mom is not coping so well with her father's profession. She's clearly got substance abuse issues. And the daughter, you know, Madeline's completely oblivious. They kind of joke about what he does for a living. but. All is not well and right in the world because we see this um, guy in a mask slowly walking towards the house. And then he stares like pretty much like Michael Myers. He's standing outside the window. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, Fukunaga has a horror background. He has a horror passion. And I definitely see those touches in a lot of the sequences in this movie. And I, I don't view that as a detriment. You know, Bond is always dabbled in other genres like black exploitation, science fiction or science fact, as Broccoli called it. Adding a horror aesthetic. To, to a movie like this that is very, uh, let's be honest, knowing what the movie's about, I see why it would have been insensitive to release it during the COVID pandemic. You're not wrong there, but let me say, this opening, fucking fantastic. 
I love this opening. I would put this opening up there with the Glorious Bastards as one of my favorite openings of the film of all time. This is tense as hell. And this little girl, she's running out. She's, she falls in this ice and he actually reaches, she shoots the ice and reaches down and picks her up. I was like, holy shit, that was fucking tense as fuck, man. I love this opening a lot. I'm glad that I was able to remember everything that Madeline had said, Inspector, because she explained everything that happened here. And this is what yes. we saw, you know, the man come into the house. Now, I will say it is ballsy to open the movie with this, assuming that everybody that came Spectre is going to remember the shit fucking, what, seven years later, five years later to this point. Because if you're coming into this cold, and I don't know why you'd come into a movie like this cold, except you used to be able to do that with Bond films. Ask Billy, um, he did it. <laughs> Jesus, Billy. <laughs> I mean, usually you could do that in a Bond film. But if you're coming into this cold, this would be a really, really weird kind of opening. It's startling. It, it's startling it, as hell. When, when she goes to that window, she's that mask. It's oh, like, yeah. holy fuck. Yep, it oh, is a complete... God. You're right, though. It's a complete Michael Myers moment, including the fact that, you know, you can shoot him six times and he can get up and walk away. All right. Well, well let me bring that. Let me bring that up, because I know a lot of people complain that he just got right back up. Well, he was knocked out for quite some time, enough to where she had to drag his body out. And secondly, he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Do you really yeah. need that? Fucking was he? Yeah. Yeah. Just because if you notice, he's not there's no blood dripping through that jacket and it's a white jacket. So you would see it. And okay. if you look at the ricochet when the bullets hit him before he falls, because it's absorbing, that's why he falls back. Um, I thought where the where this movie goes and what the end game, for lack of a better word, is, I thought that was going to play into why he wasn't killed when he was shot. So I was waiting for that reveal, and it never went there. So I, you know what? The John Wick jacket never never got to me. So, okay, I feel a little better about that. It didn't bug me. It was just kind of a, huh, okay, we got superhero villains now, too. Once we finally see the mask, it does look like it's straight from Valentine, that movie. Oh, <laughs> that stupid horror film with David Boreanaz from 2001. So the mask is kind of silly. But other than that, I, I just I love this opening. It's a great opening. So the the villain for the longest time, you know, we knew Romney Malk was playing him. He had a name. But all the rumors were he's Dr. No. And if that happened, I would have walked out of the theater. Let me say that for the record. But yeah, if you notice, I thought. There's a clue in this opening. You have to be familiar with the Fleming book. In the Dr. No novel, it is said that his heart is on the opposite side of his body. So I thought she shot him. And the reason he didn't die is because he is actually Dr. No. Uh, oh, wow. So, and let me say, uh, Fukunaga knows his bond. Like, there's a lot of references in this movie. It's a love letter. There's some very obvious pulls. But he said that the You Only Live Twice novel was a major influence, and there's a lot of touches that he pulls from there. But Garrett, as you mentioned, eventually he gets back up, chases after her, she falls through the ice, he shoots. Let me, let me say, you know who I thought of the most while watching this opening oh was Adam. Because <laughs> Adam took one for the fucking team. For those who don't know, when this opening song was released in February of 2020, me and Matt were going back and forth. We have our own chat going. We were going back and forth saying, if you listen to the song, yes. You know, we both didn't say our opinions, but we both said we listened to it. Adam's like, nope, I'm not going to listen to it until the fucking movie. <laughs> so he's pulling like a Kupka, right? Like, nope, no trailers, nothing. I'm not going to listen or see anything until the movie. So when he shoots the ice and he reaches down and pulls her under, I'm thinking, uh-oh, we're going to finally see the opening song. Nope. Later on in the sequence, Fukunaga lingers between this bell tower for like three seconds and i'm thinking okay this is when the fucking 
song is going to come up. Nope. Like, he makes Adam wait another 25 fucking minutes before he finally hears the song. I thought that was glorious. I got to say also, I avoided listening to a Grammy-winning Billie Eilish song when I have a 13-year-old goth daughter in my household. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about the song here in a little bit, but I had to get that out there. Once he shoots this ice and I think the song's coming, nope, and I'm just thinking of Adam. Oh, he's going to hear it. He's going to hear Oh, no, it's the way. (laughs) I did, too. I was like, okay, sweet. It's just like Die Another Day. We're going into the ice. Nuh-uh. Yeah. They do not go directly into the title sequence. Instead, we cut to Bond and Madeline and Matera. This takes place right after Spectre. So let me say for the record, I was not expecting this movie to be as closely tied to that movie as it is. Like, this is very much like I'm almost having to recontextualize this and Spectre as one movie. Yeah, kind of like Casino Royale and Quantum. I mean, they really almost got to watch them together. But, you know, they're together. They're in love. He says, uh, you know, we have all the time in the world. You know, obviously, Honor Majesty's Secret Service here. They're driving the Aston Martin. But they're basically at this, I don't want to call it their honeymoon, but they're they're, they're on vacation because, you know, Blofeld's in jail. Bond has basically retired at the end of Spectre. Like, he's like, I'm done. I'm going to go live my life. But she tells him that there's one thing I need you to do if we're going to be together. I need you to go to Vesper's grave and officially put all this behind you. Which I thought he had already done at the end of Quantum of Solace. Yeah, that was kind of the point. That's the whole point of that movie is him getting over it. Yes. Yep. Dropping yeah. her her necklace at the end. Yeah. No, I get I get he's done it. Maybe it's more on her end of saying, like, you know, I need you to trust me. Because that's really the heart of, of the Daniel Craig tenure for me. Like, if I had to define what the overarching theme is, it's, it's trust. Bond gets his heart broken a lot. There's a lot of, you know, he's worked with a lot of double agents. You know, the villain in Skyfall was an ex-MI6 agent. Blofeld's his brother, foster brother. So that ties in a lot. And Quantum Masalis, that's all about Bond not trusting a fucking person. So I like that. And she says, I'll tell you my secrets. Which, for me, you know, because we're going to spoil the movie, she was going to tell him she's pregnant. Yep. Because if you notice later on when she gets on the train, she holds her stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Am I the only one who the second Craig goes on screen, like there's buzzers flying out around his head? We know there's something that's going to happen to this character. I didn't know the actual spoiler itself. We'll get to the we'll get to what actually happens to him and Adam's incredibly frustrating experience with it. But like the second he appears on screen and then they jump into this action scene. Did you guys think there was a possibility they could kill him off right here? No, but I thought she was dead meat because I, I couldn't. Okay. I couldn't remember the trailers. I thought the opening of this movie was going to be the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And the rest of the movie was going to be You Only Live Twice, the book, where he's just a wreck. And, you know, because Blofeld's involved in the book. I thought this was going to be what Diamonds Are Forever promised for a lot of the people who felt dissatisfied. Yep, I agree. In fact, I think Matt and I, I think we talked about that, you know, two years ago. It was, you know, that if he comes back, the only reason it, I thought they were going to do on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the end of it, pretty much as the pre-title sequence. And it was going to end with her getting shot. And yeah, that was going to be our movie. That's what I expected. I thought this was, I was waiting for them to announce that it was, you know, their honeymoon. Because you look at this twisty, windy road. I mean, it is setting up to be on her, they know what they're doing here. I mean, the, the shots of them going on this coastal path and everything else looks so similar to what we got. And yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't go there, but I think that, like, like you said, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's playing with. And it's it's just setting up the next bit. I'm not upset that it doesn't go there. I'm not upset that it's, that it's you know, a tease just because it's more of a nod than anything else. 
but we know who Madeline is a reference. You know, we discussed that before. It's clear it's there, but it's kind of nice that they do go a different way. So Bond the next go day wakes it. up, he goes to Vesper's grave and I love how he just, there's not a lot of histrionics. He just says like, I miss you. That was more than enough for me. Yeah. And I got to say, Daniel Craig brought his fucking A game to this movie. Yes. I was worried that this was he was going to sleepwalk through and just did it for the money. This yep. might be his best performance of the five. It might be his best performance ever. I, I have to say that I have been hard on Craig since we started this retrospective. Casino Royale might still hold up as my favorite of this series. We'll talk about that at the end of this movie. But I have never been high on Craig as James Bond. I think if you would... Arrest him for being an emotive actor. You'd be arresting an innocent man. I never felt any emotional response to this guy whatsoever. But in this movie, and it starts right here, he is fucking on. I completely agree with you, Matt. Maybe it's the freshness of Fukunaga taking these reins. Maybe it's the fact that it is his last one and he wants to go out on a high note. But I was very impressed by Daniel Craig in this movie. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. There's a lot of things that he brings to it that I feel is different from other Bond performances and his other Bond performances himself. Craig has been very vocal about wanting to make this Bond different from a societal standpoint. Um, and I think he's moved it slowly. I think this movie, he was like, I will play this Bond the way I believe it should be played in this day and age, or I won't do it. And I think he's given the opportunity to do so where it's never been done that way before. And I think it's done in the way that he acts with women, the way that he acts with emotion. It's a different James Bond, even for Daniel Craig. I think he brings all of it from an acting standpoint. I think he gives less of it from a physique standpoint, but I think emotionally and actingly, he really brings it on. Yeah, I can forgive him not doing as many ridiculous stunts in this one just because his body's been through enough. Um, oh, hearing yeah. hearing about what he's went through, hearing about the broken knee, the broken ankle, and his wife basically saying, you ain't doing this shit yeah. anymore. Rachel Weisz did come out in the press yeah. and say, you know what? He's fucking, he's not doing this anymore. Yeah. Like, I'm putting yeah. the foot down. And I don't blame her, honestly. Like, after he, what he went through last night, and hell, he didn't he break his ankle on this one as well, right? He, yep. he, yeah. He, like, yeah. delayed production for a bit. And, look, he honestly literally put his body on the line for this role and i stand by those past reviews i still don't think he's the best bond but here he's definitely the most emotional and i actually care for him in this as opposed to before in his or any of the other bonds speaking of caring bond he's about to leave the grave but the camera pans and you see a almost like a telegram that has the specter logo on it <laughs> and the, the, yeah, the, the whole grave just explodes, and I love what Fukunaga does with the sound design here, where yes. there's there's ringing and Bond shouting, but it's not fully audible, so you're you're in his headspace. So after that, you know, he runs because he's like, oh shit, I gotta get back to Madeline. Gets on the bridge, the guy who led him to the grave kind of bows out, and just before he gets hit by a car, he kind of ducks. The car jumps, and we get the money shot from the trailer where he uses the rope, jumps off the bridge through the middle escapeway. Dives down, practical as always, looks great. And that was a question for me, because Fukunaga, not much in the way of action directing. And I will say, I think a lot of the workmanlike is being disrespectful, because I think it's above that. But when I th I don't think there's a sequence in this movie that's like the foot chase in Casino Royale or the hotel fight in Skyfall. It, it's really good, but I kind of wanted one of those like big scenes. You know what? I will say there's not that that opening chase in in casino royale is is absolutely amazing the bike chase that we get later you know the one with the classic craig where he adjusts his cufflinks after he jumps into the train i love that 
Skyfall to me was all style. It was all look, but I couldn't stand the rest of it. I think this kind of melds a lot of that together. I've heard I've heard complaints that this is a boring movie through and through. There's a metric fuck ton of action throughout this movie. Yeah, and but I think in two hours forty five minutes, it's few and far in between the action scenes. But the, what I will give for the dog is when the action scenes do come, they come with a punch. I think he hits the screenwriter of every time there's a lull, there's something to bring it into it. And this is one of the ones that actually, I think some of them go on a little too long, but they definitely pique my interest and get me back into the movie. The one thing that did bug me is Bond gets shot on this fucking bridge. <laughs> that car shows up, yeah. he gets shot in the back. Yeah. <laughs> he, he shrugged it off like he's fucking the Incredible Hulk, and I didn't understand <laughs> why. <laughs> Bond fights a guy. So we've, we've had, the Craig films have never really had strong henchmen outside of Hinks and Spectre. Here we got a guy with a bionic eye. Uh, we, you know, call Cyclops later on. Ugh, this fucking guy. Like, <laughs> You know what I thought of when I saw this guy? This was the guy that Batista should have played. Save him for this fucking role. I would have loved to have seen Batista take this role on. Well, I love how he tells him, like, Blofeld sends his regards, so Blofeld is still behind bars. He's still working on some shit. And I thought this meant when he goes back to the hotel, she's going to be dead. Yeah. Yeah. But she's I not. He gets back there, and Bond is just like, how did they know I was there? He's yelling at her. Like, he's going back to full paranoia. And I, I think, for me, that's what makes this work, is that it doesn't feel like... I know a lot of people are going to say he does. He turns on her at the snap of his fingers, but he still doesn't 100% know her. And yeah, he's yeah. been burned before, so I buy that, you know, her egging him on the way that she did to go do this makes total sense why he'd freak out on her like this. Yeah, I didn't have an issue with it. I didn't understand people that did. I'm like, it, it felt right. He doesn't shoot her or anything. He just tells her, get in the car. And what I'm glad is that the trailer, most of it is this opening sequence. Yes, you, I noticed that. Um, I was really happy with that. You know, they show all the other characters. Like, you know, they show Blofeld on the trailer. They show Ana de Armas. They show Felix. But as far as the big action set pieces, this is really the only big one that you get. And I think that was a smart move on their part. Because don't get me wrong, when, when, the, when he goes, okay... Turns on the, the machine guns and starts spinning around. I'm like, <laughs> I know I saw it. It's still fucking awesome. Yeah, I'd seen that in the trailer. I was ready for it. It happened. I was still waiting for my theater to cheer because it was such a kick-ass moment. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it still got a nice little pop. I love how Blofeld call, calls her phone and is making it sound like she was oh, in on yeah. it. So after they evade the Spectre agents, Madeline and Bond go their separate ways. He tells her, she's like, how will I know you're okay? He's like, you won't. So he's saying, like, look, I'm done. This is the last time. Like, I'm not going to allow myself to get attached to anybody again. So he puts her on the train. And finally, I didn't check the exact runtime, but this has to be the longest pre-title sequence because World is Not Enough held the record. And I'm pretty sure this surpassed that. I wanted to ask, and I almost looked at my clock, but I went, I'm sure Matt's got the info. <laughs> yeah, I was doing the same thing. Yeah. It, it's, well, got, yeah, it's, it's got to be. It's got to be. Because the world is not enough was what, like 15 minutes or something? Yeah, but and, and this, this surpasses one, that by at least 10 minutes. Yeah, and this one also has two scenes, really. Right. Yeah. So, you know, double points for that. But right off the bat, one thing I'll give all the Craig movies, they know how to start before the credits start rolling. Because um, oh, yeah. all five of them have really strong openings. Yeah. So after a year and a half, we can finally talk about the song. And <laughs> the, so I, I listened to the song, as Garrett had, and I told him... I will reserve my thoughts on it when I see it in unison with the title sequence, because I think that does help a lot. So here's my here's my overarching thought on the song and the title sequence. I love the visual references to Dr. No with the dots 
I love the oh, yeah. there's the automatically secret service stuff with the board of shield. Um, there's a thunderball reference. You'll see a diver at the end. Um, a lot of really good stuff. I think the song is good, but my problem with it is sort of like the Sam Smith one. I wish it built to something a little bit better. You. But all in all, I like the song a lot. I think lyrically it ties in excellent with the movie. It's one of the the best written songs they've ever done. Um, I just wish her vocals were a little bit stronger towards the end. But all in all, I liked it. So where do you guys stand on it? Let me just say, when they announced this chick, Billie Eilish, as the singer of the song, I had, unlike Adam, I don't have a daughter. I have no idea who this chick is. This guy at work who's in his fucking 60s and listens to every one of our podcasts, he loves Bond. He's the one who gave me the Bond novels to read while we were doing the first part of this retrospective. He goes, oh, my God, they got her? Oh, she's going to do outstanding. So I kind of listened to some of her stuff before I heard the song. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And then when the song did come out, yes, I did listen to it. And earlier today, I listened to it a couple more times after the title sequence. I have to say, top three song for me. Really? And it's, yeah, it, easily. I think the song's beautiful. I think the way she does her vocals, it, it gives me chills just listening to it and watching the sequence. And I think the, the vocals are perfect for what this movie's doing. And I think you're right, Matt. I think it ties in beautifully with the movie. I think the composer did a nice job of incorporating it in when he did. I, I think the song's beautiful. Top three song. All right, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Matt, you really hit the part that I liked when the credits when the uh, title sequence started, having that initial old school OG yeah. Dr. No, those dots showed up. I was like, oh, fuck, that's really cool. Um, so it started off really good. And then Writing on the Wall by Sam Smith started to play, but in a different key. And I found that kind of strange. I like this song. I don't know a lot of Billie Eilish's stuff, but I, I do think she's a very talented young woman. I feel like half of the song is Writing on the Wall. I feel like the way the notes are played, I feel like the way the melodies, I feel like it literally plagiarizes half of that song. And if you play them side by side, it's amazing how much they light up. I wish, I wish her crescendo built to something a little stronger because she keeps it in the way that she does kind of really down low and doesn't explode out like she has the talent to do. It's a good song. I like the song. I've listened to it actually quite a few times since. Other than the references, I don't think the title animation is overly strong, especially for the Craig era. I go back to something like Casino Royale, and that thing is just fucking amazing. The Skyfall one is amazing. I mean, even Spectre's hentai porn shit that they pulled off. The song sucks, but the, the, the title animation was cool. This one, it's the song is good. The title card is okay. I think Eilish did a pretty dang good job. In these five, in the five songs that we've had for Daniel Craig, it's sad to say I think she's fourth, only because I like so many of the other ones so, so much. But I don't think it's a bad song by any means. I would absolutely be happy to listen to it. I'd put it on my blonde, my Bond playlist with other ones, you know, obviously excluded, but it's a good song. There's covers out there that hit the parts that I have a problem with, though, that make it sound phenomenal. And I wish that it just crescendo built to something strong. See, I think the crescendo is perfect. And I think, you know, there's not I knew, one. I knew in listening to her stuff that she's not going to be Shirley Bassey. She's not going to be Tina Turner. She's not going to belt anything out. This, this is her style. 
you know, yeah. so I, I was prepared for it. And I, I was right with this song. Every beat of this, like, I, I really like this song a lot. But then again, I love the AHA song and you guys love the fucking garbage song. So let's, let's continue the string of not agreeing on the fucking song. I knew it was going to fucking happen. I fucking knew that you asked. I love the AHA song. I hate let's the Depeche Mode song. <laughs> you guys are just going to leave me on that fucking ledge to die. <laughs> no time to listen to the fucking song. I like it. I just didn't love it. But I've listened to it actually quite a few times since, which is kind of cool. All right. Well, after the credits, we cut to five years later. So we got a time jump where we see some agents, presumably, as we'll find out, they're working on Bava Spectre. They break into this facility, which we'll find out is sponsored by MI6, and they steal both a Russian scientist, and they also take a virus or bioweapon of some sort, which we'll find out more about later. And this movie... A letter form. Alright, well, I, I haven't done much in the way of complaining lately about this movie, so I'll start here. This Russian scientist, Orbachev, <laughs> I swear to God, this guy was watching Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons before they started shooting. He is so out of place with everybody else. I can't believe he goes from fucking one end of this movie all the way to the other. I know. And you know who I thought of when I saw this? I thought of a movie that we covered earlier this year, uh, Matt. I thought I thought of Ghostbusters 2. Like, I thought this guy was Jottish from fucking Ghostbusters 2. Oh, shit. <laughs> fucking, just annoying-ass accent. And, but yeah, you're right. I thought for sure he was going to at least die here. No. Oh, no. They, they, they keep him on. Nope, but he gets a call before they all attack from uh, Safin, who's Rami Ma's character, saying, you know, they're going to come in, they're going to ask you to take it, just do what they say. So we, we realize that Safin has, he's not a Spectre agent, or at the very least, if he is, he's going to destroy them from within, and B, he's got other people helping him out. So enjoy him now, because you're not going to see him again for another hour-ish. Yeah. If that's a bad thing or not, we'll say a little bit later. Once the Extraction is done. We cut to Money Penny going into Amazon. On, on, this, on this extraction, they have one really kick-ass scene as they do it, which, you know, I know you guys probably got enough of your magnet fill when you did Fast and Furious. <laughs> but that was but that was a pretty cool little sequence because I'm like, oh, are they going to blow yeah. up the – holy shit, they're using fucking magnets to drop down his shaft. That's yeah, pretty sweet. I thought of that too. Yeah, we've had a lot of magnets this year from, during our retrospectives. So. <laughs> I was like, oh, here's another one. For this run of Bond not being too, you know, huge on gadgets like so many of the other ones, it, it was cool to see something that was a little fun in here as quick as it was. But I was like, oh, shit, that's pretty badass. Yeah, it's quick. Mm -hmm. It's not too far out of the realm of what would work in the Craig films because they've, yeah. they've really not done much in the way of overly ridiculous gadgets. It feels plausible. It yeah. really does. The only thing that's plausible or, or not plausible is that Ray Fiennes is still holding on to that head of hair for dear life because it's <laughs> that thing's parting like the Red Sea with Moses. He, he looks more and more like Voldemort lip. with every movie. He is pulling in his top lip like Voldemort's fucking going to show up in Fantastic Beast 3. He has sucked that thing back in so deep. Jesus Christ. But M tells, he says, it was a gas leak. I'll handle it. And he says, where's 007? Obviously. That's a good question because it's been five years. Bond is living the You Only Live Twice book. He's by himself. He's living as a fisherman, doing his own living in, I don't know exactly where he, oh, he's in Jamaica. You know, just living his life by himself. I like how we're seeing his daily routine of him just like brushing his teeth and getting fish. He, he's living the simple life, basically. I thought also that doing it in Jamaica was a specific nod to Fleming and, you know, the history that Ian has with Jamaica and everything that comes with it. 
either that or I thought of – you guys know the stories of Superman 2 where the only reason they had Superman fly in to gather some flowers for the dinner was because the producers wanted a vacation? <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of thought that when I was watching this. Like this, this is an interval of Bond five years later. They just wanted to have taken a little mini vacation. That's what it is. It's the globe, you know, the globe trotting aspect. And Bond would pick somewhere yeah. pretty secluded because it looks like he doesn't have much in the way of over technology. Uh, uh-huh. This village he's living in is not too well off, but it's it's enough to where the CIA can track him down after five years. And we're introduced to Felix uh, Jeffrey Wrights, who we have not seen since Quan Masalis. Um, yeah, and I, and I haven't missed. I didn't realize it'd been that long because I've missed the son of a bitch. Fuck you. Right. <laughs> He's the watcher. He watches everything. He's more jovial in this appearance than he's been in the, the previous two. You, you know, they're they're more because in Quantum they don't really get along. Because he's like, mm-hmm. I, I, you're kind of not operating the way you should. But you know who is smiling is his partner, who Bond will later call the Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> is there any question this guy is going to fucking turn? Well, of course not. I don't know if I saw him. I'm like, let's see, handsome blonde. Sidekick. He's definitely either a Spectre agent or he's with Robin Ballas' character. I mean, this and I fucking... don't. And I don't think. I don't think it's supposed to be a surprise. No, honestly, I think you're supposed to know that. No, this guy looks like fucking Hans from fucking Frozen One. <laughs> I mean, he's just. You know, he's gonna turn. <laughs> nice. You're reference. welcome. This is the first time we got a Disney animated movie reference in this Bond <laughs> Red Trail. Well, someone's I could... just come back from Disneyland. <laughs> I couldn't let it go. Sorry. Yeah, he saw enough impersonators to be like, oh, I, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like deep fakes, but <laughs> Felix tells him, hey, I, I need your help with something. You know, he gives him all the expositions about Orbachov. They do a clever way of doing it where they're playing a game while he's talking, so it's not just him sitting down and laying down. But Bond's like, I'm good. Like, it was good to see you because, as we'll find out, Bond has questions about, because he knew Orbachev was employed at MI6 before he left. Uh, and that leads him to believe that maybe thanks, but no thanks. Because Felix even says, like, look, our governments are not talking to each other right now. So clearly we have to do this behind the books. So while they're in this club, he runs into a dancer who meets him outside because his car is broken down. She offers him a ride, takes him back to his house. And just what do you think they're about to get it on? She's like, nope, I'm a new MI6 agent. My name's Nobi. I know her from Captain Marvel. Now, this was a character that was highly publicized and condemned by all the racists and all the misogynists. The character was not utilized as much as I thought she would be, but I like, oh. I like the way it's handled. You just hit my, one of my bigger disappointments. Cause I was looking forward to her huge because I love the idea, right? I mean, it's a number and they bring that up time and time again. I wish they brought it up one final time. And this that we'll discuss later, but I was looking for so much that, Almost as a middle finger to, if you say we can't do this, no, we're not doing James Bond, but this is 007, a black female that's a kick-ass woman. And it's it's kind of sad that she doesn't have more to do throughout this movie. She's almost like the traditional Bond girl sidekick, which is kind of, I don't know, disappointing slash insulting. And that's why I thought they're going to kill Craig earlier on, because I thought for sure that someone like her, because you guys are right, it was highly publicized and it was highly criticized. I thought it was going to happen where he was going to die and she was going to take over and she was going to fulfill the mission and she was going to find stuff out as they went along instead of having Bond do it the entire time. I think she's fine, but I'm exactly with you guys. I think the execution of it is – I don't want to say poor 
I don't want to say it's not drawn out because this movie, for God's sake, it's fucking two hours, 45 minutes. It is drawn out. I think it's fine because I think it's a new wrinkle to this series that the series honestly has needed for years. So I, mm-hmm. I like the idea of it, but I'm with you guys where I think the execution is, a, is not the best. And I do like how she calls him out on his shit. Like, you know, the world's moving Oh, on. yeah. But I love how he's like, for the record, it's Commander Bond, which we have not addressed <laughs> in it. We have not addressed yeah. in the Craig continuity. And I love how when he calls M, he flat out tells him like, oh, I met your new double O. She, she's wonderful. And so the first hour of this movie, I have to say they do a really good job of making it unclear who you should trust, with the exception of yes. Logan Ash. Because yeah. he's like, M, what, like, what are you hiding? Like, what are you not telling me? So I thought, because it's Ray Fiennes, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he is either a Spectre agent or he's working with Saffin. Would I have liked I thought it, it was no. going to come back to him, especially with distrust in governments nowadays and yes. what we've gotten in yeah. this series with distrust of, gov- distrust of government. I was positive he was going to be there in the end as a villain. And that's the ultimate trump yeah, I, card for Spectre infiltrating yep. MI6. Yeah, I thought given the political climate that America's experienced in the last four years, and this is the first movie to be written in this era, that I thought they were going to go there as well. I thought they were going to make a comment on that, but no, it doesn't go there. Which, you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad it doesn't go where yeah. I think it's going to go. Yeah. Same here. M hangs up the phone. We see Q working on this um, Orbachev's hard drive. And this is where we find out that Blofeld's been in captivity for five years, but they think he's gone certifiably insane. Um, and they cut to Christoph Waltz just, like, muttering to himself in, in the jail cell. <laughs> I had no idea that Christoph Waltz was actually going to be in this movie. Same. I, I thought this was going to be a Rami Malek fucking joint. Like, I thought yep. this was going to be not necessarily a new organization, but it was going to be run by him. I didn't think that they were going to pull that Christoph Waltz was going to be the spearhead once again because – I thought Christoph Waltz had come out in the press and said he wasn't going to fucking do it anyway. So yeah. I, it, it, it surprised me to see him here. I, I like seeing him, but this is another case of do they do enough with him? Well, I don't think – I don't know. I think the screenwriters had no ideas what to do with Spectre or Blofeld, and yeah. we see that in a little bit. Yeah, that, uh-huh. well, that extends to you know trying to undo the mistakes of the last movie. I think they felt obligated to include him. One thing I do like, though, is that Spectre, still, Spectre actually feels like a threat in this movie. I know they get kind of dispatched pretty easily, but it's not like Bond takes them all out. And I like how we, we have a another villain who hates Spectre and is not a member and is kind of his own third party, which we've never really done before, especially when Spectre was involved, because it was it was always just Blofeld and, and other agents. But this is where we also get the they, they, they say he's been communicating using a bionic eye, which ties into the Cyclops character. My question is, when exactly did that prosthetic get sent? Because if you recall at the end of Spectre, when he's in jail, his eye is not missing. It's just he's scarred, scarred, he's scarred up. Milky. Yeah. So I'm not going to complain too much about plot holes, but that's one where I'm like, OK, I kind of wish they explained how exactly that happened for five years and nobody's fucking noticed. But. Bond calls Felix the next day. He's like, all right, fuck it. I'll do it. Felix is like, oh, thank God. I have this contact in Cuba that I want you to go meet. And we're introduced to Ana de Armas' character of Palomo, who was added very late in the writing process. Craig loved working with her so much in Knives Out. He said, hey, can we find a way to incorporate her into the movie? And for the for the little screen time she has, I think she, she knocks it out of the park. Um, Fucking phenomenal. She's the highlight of the film for me. She only gets, what, like maybe 15 minutes of screen time in this. But, fuck, she's, I agree with you, Matt. She owns the screen every time she's on. She is a big highlight of this film. Yeah. My only disappointment was that 
she wasn't around more because she was fucking touted pretty big in marketing and stuff like that. And it could just be because she's drop dead fucking gorgeous. Yeah, she's hot. Absolutely. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. But it's amazing how different she plays from here to Knives Out. I couldn't stand the character for the first five minutes, and I realized she's playing it that way on purpose. And when you figure out that she's playing an act, fuck, it plays so well. It really does. But Bond loosening up in just a cool little moment when they're in this bar and they're kicking ass, they're fighting, they're shooting, they're killing, you know, and they drop into a bar and pours them both a drink and clink, cheers. It just, there's a good sense of fun when these two are going through here. It, it, yeah, it's a great little scene. Why enjoy, from my perspective, a Bond girl that leaves you wanting more? Because oftentimes yep. they overstay their welcome. In the case of, you know, Honey Ryder, she's in that movie way too much. It's somebody like that or it's somebody like Strawberry Fields that showed up for five minutes, slept with them, and then the only other time we see her, she's dead. And we don't get that because James literally sleeps with one person one time throughout this entire film. So there is no Bond deadly dicking going on th throughout this. Well, the deadly stuff is happening because there's a Spectre party going on for Blofeld's birthday, which I find hilarious. Happy birthday. Um, like, like they have a they have a lot of fun. And one thing I do like, Bond is a lot more talkative in this movie than he's ever been, especially with Daniel Craig. Yes. They do something with him that I didn't think he'd be able to pull off. They give him fucking puns to say <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, and once again, I don't think his delivery of them are the best, but I love the fact that they went there with him. I am actually enjoying seeing Bond on screen. Before he was a sap. Okay, yes, Vesper was your one true love. He have gone so many different places with this guy that I just can't find myself liking him. Here, he's actually saying puns. He's actually having a good time. And as a result, the movie's two hours, 45 minutes, but I'm having a pretty good time as well. And it moves quick. The, the way yes. the camera's moving around, you'll see a Michael Wilson cameo. He's sitting on one of the couches. And I love how Blofeld's they got the eye on the waiter's plate, and he's just talking to everybody. <laughs> yes. Um, but Orbachov is with Cyclops. He knocks over the the hard drive, and he switches out the gas canisters. So Wolfeld has everything set up literally on a silver platter to kill Bond. I think Waltz has more spoken words off camera than he does in his scene later on with Bond. Most of his dialogue, he's not even on camera. <laughs> but it's all set up by James. Opens the doors, proverbially. And it kills all the Spectre agents in the room. So it's some kind of, we now know it's some kind of bioweapon. And look, I, I think this is a much better movie than what it was referencing. But for God's sake, can we finally have a spy franchise that doesn't have a fucking virus plot? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Mission Impossible 2, anybody? Yeah. Hobbs and Shaw. Thing. Hobbs and Shaw just yeah. had it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bond but is, you know what? Yeah. You, you made a point earlier, Matt, that if they had released this in the midst of the pandemic, that just would not have flown. Like, I'm surprised they actually got this through, honestly. I'm surprised there wasn't a rewrite. Not that you know, I don't like the fact that they went here. Like, it's interesting that they had the balls to actually go through with this and actually do this plot. And they say that nothing was changed. There was no reshoot. There was no cut. One, bullshit. But if it was done, it was done well. Um, and yeah, putting this out a year ago, oh, f or putting it out directly for streaming with all this going on, this, no, it wouldn't fucking fly. Yeah, th there's absolutely no way. I think not to mention, I, I got to say, I got to give credit to whatever type of industrial strength Hollywood tape they used to keep uh, Darius inside that dress while she was fighting it uh, with James. Because <laughs> I have no idea how that stayed in place. So speaking of fighting, I love how we're seeing Bond, like he flings the, the tray at Orbachov to knock him out. And then <laughs> Nomi is grabbing Orbachov. They're, they're fighting over him. Mm -hmm. And on a uh, Paloma, she 
this movie's like a Brosnan movie with the amount of machine guns that get used. Like for him being anti-gun and wanting to go a different way, this is like you know Sigourney Weaver wanting to do an anti-gun alien sequel and then showing up at fucking aliens with machine guns the whole time. I mean, he shoots a metric fuck ton of villains in this movie. I didn't do the math. Because I didn't do it for the, the title sequence. Why would I do it for a body count? But Golden and I hold the record for the most people Bond is killed. This has got to be pretty fucking close, if not surpass it. If not more, yeah. But eventually, Bond gets Orbachev, bids Paloma farewell. Nomi's kind of left hanging. <laughs> you know what? I love that she gets out of it the exact same way that James would. Yeah. Yeah, she you know, shoots the she's electrical. She's sitting there, her hands are up, she fucking shoots something to set off a little explosion, and she's fucking gone. Yeah, like, I, not I, only I, is that the way that something would do it, that's very reminiscent to Casino Royale, with him shooting the, the propane tank, you know, exploding it and taking off. So I fucking love that she is, she's a double O. To me, this is sort of like the Jinx character done well, because there's never a moment where she gets her ass kicked by Roseman Pike. <laughs> right. But speaking of getting their ass kicked, Bond goes back to Felix's, they're on like, a, like an oil rig almost, or, or a ship of some kind, and we get his where's the trigger interrogation. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of Dark Knight Rises in this movie, for the record. Um, oh my god, I had so many Dark Knight Rises flashbacks while I watched this. Uh, <sighs> but he's basically saying, like, you know, how they know I was there. Uh, you know, they're all yelling at each other. Orbachev talks about, you know, it was, you were never the target. Uh, this is where Ash reveals to be a double agent. Shoots Felix point blank in the stomach, um, which got a lot of gasps in the theater. Um, Wouldn't mind. Garrett's fucking cheering, but I'm like, yeah. God damn it. <laughs> My theater was very vocal at certain points, and this was one of them. They, they were very responsive to this. I love how there's this moment where after they fight, Orbachev kicks the gun over to Ash. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a little moment, and it lingers on it for like two seconds. But it's a great fucking moment just to sit and linger because it, it breaks the tension enough while still just keeping that air of, of action. Yeah. A little moment, but it fucking works. Yeah. It leaves him to drown, and Felix tells him, like, look, just you go. Like, it's, I think he says, like, it's a really good life. He says, like, it's a good life or something. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Look, I, I knew people were going to die in this movie. This was not one I called. Um, nope. And, and I'm always grateful especially when a bond movie can surprise you like look death is like tackling people like it's like it's the nfl and the craig continuity every movie has killed off at least a major character vesper mathis m uh specter killed my patients if that counts <laughs> um, and this one nice. is, and this one's like the hunchback of notre dame where it's like people are just dropping left and right <laughs> Yeah, you, who's doing this, Josh Whedon? Yeah, I agree with you, but you know what? You got to up the stakes in these, and this is a good way of doing it. They have teased killing him off in the past. Like, didn't they kill off his wife or Yeah, they murdered – and um, license to kill, the whole point is it's a yeah. revenge mission because his wife is murdered and he gets his leg Exactly. Uh, yeah, so they, they've, they've teased they, – they've thought about doing it in the past, but the fact that they actually went through with it, I think it this says a lot about this movie. I think it says a lot about the ball to this movie that it actually had, is willing to go there. Yeah, previous movies let him get eaten by a shark and lives, but in a Craig here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and we're gonna, and we're also like this movie. You know, it's a very violent movie, but unlike License to Kill, I don't feel like this revels in the violence, and it doesn't go nah. to. They don't oh. rape and kill his wife like they do in License to Kill. Yeah. Here, yeah. it's just and setting up those stakes. 
you, you couldn't just do what they do at the end of this movie without other impactful deaths. And for, for a character that we have not seen in so long, and for it to have the impact it does, I think says a lot to how, how well executed most of this movie is. Bond eventually escapes, and he drives. He, I don't know where the fuck he kept this car. Uh, this is the Aston Martin from The Living Daylights. Yeah, I tried to figure this out, and this, you know, there's a there's a couple really shitty, harsh cuts in this movie, and this is one of them. And one, every fucking editor that cuts a movie should be required to do so in a dark theater, because I don't know how many times it went from black to white, and I had to shield my eyes. But also, suddenly he's just rolling up a garage door, and if it wasn't for the bulldog porcelain, I wouldn't realize that it was just like a storage facility that he had chilling in London. Yeah, and it had to be because I remember in Skyfall, M says, "Oh, we sold all your stuff," but yep. he gets some kind of living space inspector. So this is probably just an extension. But again, it's got to be off the books because he's been gone for five years. Yeah, someone's paying that bill. Um, and thankfully, unlike The Dark Knight Rises, there's no magic knee brace that solves everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pay attention, 007. I've equipped you with this. But M, uh, he goes back to see M, and I love this exchange where he's like, you're no longer my boss, so I can say whatever the fuck I want for you. Because uh, he's like, has the desk gotten bigger or have you gotten smaller? This was the scene where I, I realized that they were going to go there with Craig, where he was actually just going to be just the, the smarmy asshole that, quite frankly, that Brosnan wasn't his. I, I had real Brosnan flashbacks while watching this. And for those who listen to this entire retrospective, Brosnan, he, he was my favorite Bond. So I love this exchange. I thought it was glorious. Yeah, yeah. And I love how M chews him out, but not in a emasculating type of way where he's like, look, you were so off the grid, we thought you were dead. So we moved on. Yeah. But he's also like, look, you have no right to speak to me. You left us for a woman. Your job was not done. Like, you were still serving our government. Uh And he doesn't give him a direct answer about, like, you know, Orbachev. And he talks about, like, you know, tell that to Felix because he's dead. Great, great stuff here. This is easily the most I've liked where he finds his M during his his tenure. Yeah, it's it's finally something worth the reason you get somebody like Ray Fiennes to play M. Because he hasn't been given this material yet. No. But he basically dismisses Bond. And instead of throwing the hat on the hat rack, he throws the ID tag right in the garbage <laughs> near Money Penny's desk. Yep. Um, yep, I thought of that, too, because you're going through this retrospective with you guys. I would not have caught that, honestly, if I hadn't been going through this with you guys. So that, I, I definitely took that as the, a hat reference. Exactly. So because they have no leads, Vaughn takes Money Penny to poor Q's house, who's getting ready for a date. So we have Can a, we also say, we have a gay, because I think this is fucking have a, great. Yeah, we have a gay they Q, have, and nobody calls attention to it. Yes. Yes, I fucking love that it's just a line. He's coming over for dinner. I have a date with it, whatever it was. And I was like, you know what? That's just fuck. Ah, uh, just to fucking have it there and just to drop it there, I thought was great. I gotta yep. say. Also, a callback. These are the two cats that are mentioned, Inspector, and I love how Bond's like, you know, they come with fur these days. <laughs> um, so we also didn't talk about um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was brought on to do some punch-up on the script. Yeah, I was going to mention that because this was another Craig mandate, wasn't it? Like this, this was another Craig idea. Yeah. He wanted her to come in and do this punch up on the script. And I looked at her resume. Like she's done a whole bunch of stage work and uh, a lot of TV work. Uh, I guess she's a comedian. And I definitely feel that, man. I think that's her touch that I'm feeling while watching this where, you know, Paul Haggis, very respected screenwriter, but everything was so goddamn heavy. There's actually a lightness to this. Matt, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think it's because of her touches. Tells Q, I need you to show me what's on the hard drive. And basically it's a restoration of a DNA database where it's all everyone's different coding, predominantly Spectre agents. They're all listed as deceased. So clearly someone is after Spectre. 
trying to wipe them off the map, and it's not James Bond, it's not MI6. Blofeld is apparently the only surviving member, and as they mentioned, he's in he's in prison, and there's only one person he'll speak to. And oh my God, who could that yeah. possibly <laughs> ever be? All right. So I have to mention this. We talk about retcons and trying to undo Spectre. I thought in this movie they were going to reveal she's actually Blofeld's daughter. Really? Uh, I thought she was going to be... I didn't know about daughter, but I thought something with him. She's his Clarice Starling. <laughs> they treat him like he's fucking Hannibal Lecter. Uh-huh. I mean, in the opening, in that opening title card, in the opening animation, they constantly had shown the double helix of DNA. Yep. So other than just the virus, I thought an actual familial relationship was going to play out. And it does, just not the way that I thought. Again, Gary, you talk about fucking um, expectations. Yeah, I thought we were going to see some of that here. We then cut to Madeline, first time we've seen her since the opening. She's told she has a new patient. And finally, an hour plus into the movie, we get our first scene with Rami Malek out of the mask. Although he's caked in uh, makeup to give him scar. Yeah. All right. Find even pockmarks that come and go throughout the movie? Yep. Yeah. yeah. What was this, another Dalton reference? This is Robert Davey they're trying to make <laughs> us think of while, while looking at him with these wrinkles. Let me say this. You know, when they announced him as a villain, as I mentioned previously, I thought he was going to be running this entire thing. I think for the most part, with the exception of some decisions he makes later on, I think he's pretty good. I like him as a villain. But again, there are things that he does towards the end of this movie that kind of make me turn on him as a good villain. But I think for the most part, he holds up pretty well. I'm at this point trying to figure out how he's appears to be the same age as Madeline yeah. Swan. Yeah. If he's the points. fucking adult yeah. in the beginning. Because I'm thinking, okay, it's a child. I'm thinking he's the child of that person. Now uh-huh. here to seek revenge by getting Madeline. Like, that's got to be it. Because they appear to be the same fucking age. No, he's... I mean, we're looking at fucking, what, she was like seven-ish, so we're like 20 years later? There's no yeah. way that Rama Malik is 20 years older than that person at the beginning of the movie. So that makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. Zero um, sense. It, like, they're trying to cover it with the makeup. It's like, dude. That's like, also why you, you put him in a mask that. in the opening. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, it. I mean, he would have to be like a teenager at uh-huh. best, or, at the absolute oldest. So, yeah, like 20. I mean, it it is such a misstep that it's actually kind of distracting for me at that point. On top of it, you literally brought in somebody, you just got Spectre back a movie ago, and you brought in somebody just to wipe out Spectre to move on from. It, it just doesn't sit that well with me. I like Rami Malek in some things. I really don't like him in other things. I don't think he's doing anything really in this movie other than talking softly while wearing a robe. So I don't know. I don't find him any more menacing than Dominic Green from Quantum of Solace. I, he, he's fine. It's, I think it's a really misuse of Rami Malek. I do. So it's weird because they keep, they keep bringing in these Oscar winning actors to pull these roles off. And it seems like each and every time the three of us get disappointed. I think out of the three of them, this is the biggest compliment. I will pay it. This is the least disappointed I was. Um, hmm. Let me say this. He's no Silva. Um, I, I still think that's the high watermark for just Bond villains in general. I think he's perfectly serviceable. But that's mm-hmm. also a detriment because he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And he mm-hmm. wipes out Spectre so easily that it makes me realize, oh, you really do have to watch this as part two of a, of a two-part story because you'll be really disappointed. But then when it comes down to it, his goal is fucking Ultron. I'm going to wipe people that, out just that, to wipe that's people my, out. That's my big issue. It, no, I, I have another superhero example. This is Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin. He has a goal. I'm going to wipe out my board slash kill Spectre. 
And then after that, fuck it, I'm just going to kill everybody. Now, I thought, one of the reasons why I wanted to see this movie three times was he talks so softly. He's got fucking Eddie Redmayne syndrome in this movie. Like, <laughs> uh, like I swear to God. Over the top with it! Yeah, he's the, he's the better version of Red, Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter Ascending. But I thought there were dialogue that I missed where he talked about his motives. It's still unclear, because I thought, like, when they show that trajectory of the virus across the world, I thought he was spreading it through the families, specifically of Spectre agents. But right. then you learn, oh, they all die once they come into contact, so it really wouldn't... It's it's muddled, and I'll say that. I'm not going to condemn the movie too much, because Lord knows Bond villains are not the most sophisticated for the most part. But he kind of reminds me of Tom Hardy's Bane, speaking of Dark Knight Rises, where it's like, mm. yeah, he's there, but I don't think he's the best part of the movie. And I feel like, in both cases, they're very underwritten. To bring up what you said earlier, though, it seems like maybe he was supposed to be Dr. No, and then they mutated what that role was going to be. Because if he was Dr. No doing this, I would believe it and understand it a whole lot more. Now, if you notice, he wraps up a piece of her hair, which plays into the movie later, and he tells her, you know, I saved your life. I would have liked to have known what the fuck happened after he pulled her out of the ice. That's never explained. Did he say, like, you know, someday I'm going to come back and ask you for something? For a movie that's I thought that was a damn near, yeah, for a yeah. movie that was damn near three hours, I thought we were going to get that, and I do think there are some narrative shortcuts that the movie suffers from. But to be honest, I kind of would want to see a director's cut. I'm curious what was taken out. Maybe he had more scenes that were shot. But all mm-hmm. in all, he basically says, "I need you to put this on and, and go see Bullville." Yeah, Lord knows we don't need this movie to be longer. So <laughs> I, I think you're right, Matt. I think there was something left either in the scripting stage or on the cutting room floor where. There, more of this is explained. So, and, uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I think it, it does hurt the film. So Bond, Q, M, and Money Penny, they all get together. They talk about Heracles, where it's basically designed to a specific target, but it does not kill anyone who comes into contact with it. But Safin has manipulated it to where you can target specific genomes to wipe out entire families, because that's what he's been doing to all the Spectre agents. Bond gets his wish to go to Belmarsh to go see Blofeld, and this is where he meets Swan for the first time in five years. And, yeah, it's about as awkward as you think it would be to the point where even uh-huh. Nomi and Tanner mm-hmm. bring it up, and she's uncomfortable to the point of shaking. Bond touches her, and she leaves before Blofeld even gets in the rub. Oh, boy. All right. This Blofeld reveal and the way that it slides into the – you can tell that somebody's job is just to figure out how to, rig, how to design some scenes. And I dig it. I fucking dig him sliding into this room. <laughs> All right. So Bond and Blofeld, this is the first time they've seen each other in so long. And I left up Blofeld's, oh, yeah, look at us. Just two old men trying to spin the tires. <laughs> it's funny. Like, I didn't like Walt Inspector at all. I don't think he's great here, but I like their dynamic much more here. Um, Considerably. Where he's just, he's like, give me a name, Madeline. Come on, give me the <laughs> name, Madeline. He's just fucking with him at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't like him anymore, but I like them two together more. I still don't think that Christoph Waltz was anywhere close to being written well for in this series. I think Blofeld has been really pissed poorly handled, honestly. But I do like their dynamic. Yep, two things. One, how pissed are you if you're Christoph fucking Waltz and what you did to get the role of Estar fucking Blofeld? And this is what you got. Last movie yep. and then what happens here. Second, I want to point out, I love the way this this scene and this room is shot and filmed. I think it is fucking gorgeous. The mirror, the effect that it has, you know, going back to mirror upon mirror upon mirror upon mirror. I think it's just really, really cool and well done. And he, this where he reveals that I staged everything in, in Italy to make it look like Madeline Turner in you. And as luck would have it, she has all the answers you need, not me. And Bond is so enraged that he 
tries to strangle him to death, and it turns out the virus actually does the work, and Blofeld is off right there, complete with uh-huh. the Diefeld, Die Blofeld die line that is in the You Only Live Twice book, where he does, in fact, strangle him to death. I couldn't believe this. The only thing I thought, one, after such a, you know, a cool scene of these two together, it was it was Charles and, and Eric. It was X-Men all over again. But to fucking just be like, well, fucking Blofeld's gone. Way to go. He got like a movie and a half. Not even a movie and a half. And he's, he brought him in and killed him off already. Could not believe yeah. it. Utter waste. I, I'm not going to call it a waste. I, I'm also not going to call it redemption because I still think Blofeld has been one of the biggest botches of the Craig era. And I don't think there's a lot of gray stains overall like throughout his entire tenure. But that's one thing I think if they could have redone it in a better way, they would have in a heartbeat. But Waltz also said, I will only come back if Daniel comes back for one more. Like he was yeah. that disenfranchised. So I, I honestly don't think he was going to be in it that much regardless. So after that, you know, we have two. We've killed off Felix and Blofeld, uh, two iconic characters. Um, but you know what? This is better than dropping an unnamed Blofeld down a chute and him begging for his life. Um, so you know what? I'll take it. Bond eventually tracks down Madeline to her childhood home in the exact same shot from behind. He walks uh-huh. down. And, okay, where, where the fuck do I start? So the daughter. Could they have made this any more fucking obvious? Did they CG her eyes blue? <laughs> she looked like the baby from fucking Twilight. <laughs> I did get a few Superman Returns flashbacks here where oh we're looking at this kid saying, yeah. okay, is he or is he not? And it doesn't take you very long to put it together. But she does say when he sees her, don't worry, it's not yours. So I think they're trying to throw you off a little bit. But you're right. It's plainly obvious if you're paying attention who this is. Yeah. So look, a lot of people, a lot of hardcore Bond fans are pissed off at the fact that Bond has a daughter. Two things. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. There's a Facebook group of Bond called James Bond Enthusiasts, and a lot of people call this a betrayal. And those people wow. have not read the Only Live, the Only Live Twice novel, where if you recall in that book, he gets married to Kitty before she gets killed. She bears his child in that book. Mm-hmm. And it's never mentioned again. On the books again. Yeah. It's never really mentioned again. Like, the kid doesn't come up. It's not like, you know, in the next book, oh, it's my it's my week with the kid. But there's precedent for this. So let's be honest. Bond probably has hundreds of bastard children across this country, across the world. Holy shit. Look, well, I, I, I kind of cringed initially just because it, it was so, like I said, obvious is the right word. But I also took the she's not yours line as metaphorically. That I raised I her. Too. You had nothing to fucking do with this. This is all mine. That's exactly like, how I took it. And I like his delivery where he says, like, look, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't faking my authenticity for you. And he's like, basically, I'm sorry. And this is where Hans Zimmer, who I'm very hit or miss with Hans Zimmer. I love how he orchestrates the Billy Eilish song into the movie. Subtle. Very subtle. Yeah. He was a replacement, wasn't he? Fukunaga yeah. was going to use his normal composer. Halfway through editing, he replaced. Yeah. Halfway through editing, they brought him in. So once again, Zimmer's against the wall and he's having to do a last minute score. So for that, I can forgive him for pulling a lot of his Dark Knight Rises score and putting it into this one. There's one track I really like that we'll talk about later. But for the most part, I am not too impressed with this score. But I'm not going to hold that against him again because he was brought in way late on this production. So Bond is shown Mr. White's secret room to which he says, what is it with your dad in secret rooms? (laughs) (laughs) I love that line. I love that. And I have to say, you know, we've been complimenting Craig a lot. I want to compliment Leah Sado as well. I think she is really good in this, in a role that I could take or leave last film. Uh, I think she's great here. And I think a lot of what happens in this movie, I think it has weight due to her. I, I think she sells this role 
very well in this movie. And I wouldn't be surprised if I saw an Oscar nomination for it, honestly. I would I never would be like shocked. her in this movie until we get here. Well, this is only her third scene. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like her all of Spectre. Couldn't stand her. And I'm not a fan of her as, a, as an actress. I just, I'm just not. Did not like her the entire opening of this movie, but I do like her a lot here. I mean, from here on, I like her acting choices. I like the way that she emotes. I like that she dresses and acts different than a lot of Bond women, Bond girls that we've had for the last 50 years. I actually appreciate it, and I can see the difference in this one a lot. A lot of white. She's wearing white in almost every scene, and I think that's very telling. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's very metaphorical for where the character actually goes towards the end of this film. There's only one part where she is wearing black, and it's contrast with the white shirt. So I do see a lot of what they're playing with here. And again, I want to attribute a lot of that to Fukunaga and his coming in and adding the touches that he did. You can tell he's a major fan of this series. Matt, you're pointing out references that I didn't catch. And I only watched this movie once, so I didn't really catch them the first time. But if I watch them again, I'm sure I'll catch even more. Because Fukunaga is a real fan. And not only that, he is driven to make a very humanistic story centered around this character that has been larger than life for so long. And uh, for that, I want to give this movie big, mad props. So this is where we get Safin's backstory, where his family were toxicologists employed by Spectre. And Mr. White was ordered on Blofeld's behalf to murder his entire family. Successful except for Safin, which is why he's scarred. Like, that's a side effect of what they used to try to kill him. And as a result, he tried to, you know, wipe out Spectre. That was his goal. And he also has an island that is in disputed waters between Japan and Russia. So, again, I was thinking, Dr. No, like, all the pieces were there, but this was not a... Yep. This wasn't a con situation or a Blofeld situation where it was so obvious. Island is a big giveaway, but a lot of... Blofeld had a fucking volcano lair. Yeah. So, like, I like what they're setting up. You know, we have, once again, this is the third, the last three villains have all been motivated by revenge. You know, Silva was after M. Blofeld was, oh, daddy liked you more, so I'm going to ruin your life. And, 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 in this, and in this one, it's, I don't think I'm kidding, by the way. I, I'm pretty sure that's what his motivation was. And then, that's what it was. You know, this one is sort of a mix of both, where he's after authority. But again, they don't answer, okay, why is he going to kill millions of people and just establish a new world order? Because that's the Bond, that's the Bond, it's in the Bond villain handbook. <laughs> yeah, and it's, okay, so White was working for, we got to remember, back then it was Quantum. So was Quantum already acquired by the Spectre conglomerate by that point? Did he wipe out the rest of Spectre's, you know, little side missions that they had? Ah, oh, fuck. I don't yeah. know, this little scene underneath, I love when it's down there. But it's almost like somebody sat and went, look, I don't know. Y'all got like five pages to write a reason that is going to at least make it through to the end of this movie. Of all the ways they could have done it. And yeah, we've seen convoluted plots before, but Craig movies seem to be a little smarter than that. And this one seems reductive. Yeah, it's as plot holish as Silva's escape in Skyfall. Um, I, yeah. I think it's on that level. But, you know, I'm not going to feel like I was complaining about plot holes and I almost typed. Oh my God! Somebody's complaining about plot holes in a James Bond movie. Inconceivable. Like, yeah, absolutely. I thought the same thing, dude. I'm like, there are plot holes in every single James Bond fucking movie. Maybe Casino Royale, but I, I did not fret over this whatsoever, honestly. And uh, what did I say that entire 26 movie fucking retrospective? I said, if I'm having a good time, I can put plot holes like this aside. And at this point, I gotta say. This is the point of the movie. I've been hearing a lot of complaints about the fact that it drags. And I am in this story. I am in it 100%. And I'm still having a good time. I am not thinking about these plot holes. 
No, I'm not. I'm not feeling the rhyme time either at this point. We're like two thirds of the way through. No, I'm not either. Let's say I'm bringing up little quibbles, but you know, as Matt, you brought up like Silva, I I couldn't stand that part because I just I I didn't like where it went with Silva towards the end of that movie. So I had big big problems with it. Here, I'm noticing it, but I'm glancing over it. And yeah, the runtime one I got to bring up AMC. You're a fucking asshole for having tw- 35 minutes of commercials before a two-hour and 40-minute movie. You're a bunch of oh fucking God. dicks for that. Oh, oh my God. God. One, my 1 o'clock movie started at 1.35 when MGM fucking Lion came up. But yeah, I am not feeling the run to – I don't once check my watch. I don't look at my phone. Never once am I wondering where my time is in this movie. The next morning after he makes her breakfast, she's like, oh, it's not bad. Like we're seeing a domesticated bond, which we've never really seen before. Um, Garrett, did you laugh being that they were speaking in French? Because I did. <laughs> For those that don't know, fucking 20 years ago, me and Garrett were in French, 25 years ago, Garrett and I were in French class together. Yeah. So they're talking yeah, French, I, and I'm, it's making me laugh. I, I did think it was a little bit ironic that 25 years later, it's coming right back to us. <laughs> Tells Q, you know, I need a plane to get to Safin's Island. How's 007 tracking Ash? Right on his tail, so he says, all right, get in the car, and we get a uh, pretty decent car chase. I don't think it's anything spectacular, but I love when they go into the, the foggy forest, and he puts on his uh, Rambo headband and ties up the – puts the line and on. He does an, and he does an Ewok trick? Yes, he does, with the roll. Yes, he does. I love – you know, there were cheers in the theater when Swan shoots that one guy. Oh, yeah. And so homages. Ash gets out of the car. After it flips. Yep. And he says, like, you know, I had a brother. His name was Felix. And he drops the car on him. That is a very awesome reference to For Your Eyes Only when he kicks the car over the edge. That's exactly my thought. It was the same wow. just type of – and we talked then about Bond killing in cold blood and, you know, kicking that car. And that's exactly what it felt like here. Continuity-wise, it always bugs me when, you know, we're traveling somewhere, we're driving. Then an action sequence starts and suddenly – the light and the time of day seems really fucking drastically different. And I know they try to compensate that because we're in the woods and it's foggy, but we go from night to day to day to night, kind of back and forth to dusk to dawn. And it bugs me a little bit the way they're filming it, but it's a pretty kick-ass action sequence. And Saffin's there. So he captures uh, Madeline and Matilde, puts them on the helicopter. And Bond's like, well, shit, I suck at my job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He had one job. Yeah. It's like, it's so bad. He has to get, uh, Nomi picks him up. And this is where they sort of bury the hatchet. It was like, you know, thank you for saving me. And okay. One little moment in the car. And I know that in Jamaica, Grace Jones was fucking there and got so pissed off by like the three lines they gave her to say, she walked off and refused to be a part of this movie. Fucking Mayday was supposed to be in Jamaica. However, when Nomi is driving this car, she's wearing the fucking Mayday glasses. And, it just popped me a little bit. It was a nice little reference to it. I caught that. I did not catch too many references, but I did catch that. It's funny. That's one I didn't catch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You saw three times. Yeah, I know. Well, I, all my jokes about Grace Jones have nothing to do with their glasses. Um, <laughs> true. So they go meet with Q. This is where we get our briefing. Gives them a couple gadgets like the watch. All right. All right. So the watch. I thought this was going to be the equivalent of no autopilot where this actually stops all the missiles at the end. <laughs> Thankfully, that didn't happen, but there was a moment, I'm like, I swear to God, if the fucking watch saves his life from all those missiles, <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit. 
He also gets the QDAR, which is like this little like boom box that basically tracks where they are. And, you know, it's pretty cool seeing and this plane's fucking awesome, too. That turns into a submarine. Yeah, absolutely. You know yeah, it was kind of neat. We we, um, we set the plane earlier. Every time we were walking through MI6, they had that like wind tunnel right in the middle of the fucking office. <laughs> and uh-huh. every time there's a different vehicle in front of that wind tunnel, <laughs> including this plane, this little, you know, drop plane that they use. But there's there's a car. There's a different car. I want to say Bond drives like four different Aston Martins in this movie. And then that plane also right in front of that wind tunnel in the fucking office. Then cut to Safin on his island where he's walking around. We get the Garden of Death, basically. So that is from the Only Live Boys novel, where basically Bond is asked to kill uh, a doctor by the name of Shatterhand, who turns out to actually be Blofeld. He's operating a Garden of Death, basically, where people go to commit suicide. Wow. Um, hmm. So that's a, that's a neat reference there, and I like how he's talking about the plants that can do, like, you know, control people's minds. And I get the creep factor from him, which I like, you know, because Silva, mm-hmm. there's something unsettling about Silva, too. Um, So he has that going for him over someone like Green or because I've heard a lot of people who think he's like one of the worst Bond villains. He's middle of the pack for me Um, because yeah. it's not also like watching Jonathan Price embarrass himself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, what is their bar? Honestly. You know that that's what I thought of when I was thinking about this villain and its uh, place in this in this pantheon of villains that we've had in 26 plus films. I, I did not think it was that bad. Like I don't know what people are crousing about. You know what? That's the bullshit social medialization of everything having to be binary, great or horrible, and acting like there's no fucking middle ground anymore. Lots of middle ground, and he's right in the middle ground of all of it for me. Yeah. Um. So Bond and Nomi get on the island, which is a, you know, is a World War II base that has been converted into this, you know, nanobot producing factory, which we didn't mention. It's not a virus, technically. They're, they're nanobots. So clearly they played the everything or nothing video game, uh, <laughs> which also has a, has a subplot about nanobots being at the heart of the villain's schemes. But um, on top of it, that means James Bond's blood has been a factor once, twice. Three times, four times since it matters twice inside this movie. He's gotten smart yep. blood injections three times in five movies, and now he's got nanobites in his blood instead. Yep. I don't know what is going on at Broccoli, but they have got a boner about James Bond blood going on. You only bleed twice, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so I like how, you know, it's a ticking time bomb at this point. M and Q, they're all watching the broadcast bond finds Orbachev, confronts him and Safin tells him, Hey, leave him alone. Come talk to me. Cause you have something I want. I have something you want. And he goes into this. I love this, this set, this big open aired. Yes. Uh, facility. It's so big that, you know, Safin's there with the daughter and he looks just so small in this giant building. Um, and I, I, from an aesthetic level, I love, Craig's wearing what he's wearing, blue the blue jacket. You know, it looks methodical, looks practical. And this is where we had our typical villain monologue where, yep. you know, he talks about, like, you know, people, we tell each other lies all the time about, you know, free will and the world's not all that bad. So he's kind of explaining his motivation, but I, there's got to be scenes missing. Um, it doesn't make, yeah, there's, it, it still doesn't make sense. People want to die when they're not looking, so I'm going to kill everybody? What? Like, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. 
Did they think it was too and close to Thanos, so they rewrote yes, it at the last minute? That, that Did the virus theory. scare them off? You know, it. I mean, when you have a virus plot like this that's going to kill people, there's very few ways you can go. And depending on how long this was in, you know, at least being written, I mean, did fucking Kingsman scare them off? I mean, something is missing here. Absolutely. And this is when I started thinking about the fact that his motivations are starting to not make any sense. Because I think you guys are right. I don't know if this was hasty rewrites. I don't know if this was the studio kind of fretting over the pandemic that was going on when this movie was trying to be released. But this feels so hasty and so reactionary that it just doesn't make any sense. Safin did his homework. He knew enough to take his gun and his sidearm, but he snuck in the Walther VPK, kills the mm-hmm. guards. Safin escapes through the little garbage chute, basically. Uh, <laughs> like, like a trap door, which I love. Like, Drops I love- down a slide in a second. Yeah. Yep. And I love how later on he's walking around. She bites him. And he's like, look, you don't want to be with me. Just fucking leave. Because I'm going to blow th- this place. Probably going to get blown up anyway. <laughs> And I got to say, I hate kids in movies, especially in fairy tales like this, because I always feel like they're pandering, you know, like Cousin Oliver. I just want on the Brady Bunch, I want them to bury him under the fucking swing set. But here's the thing. Not only does this movie owe a lot to The Dark Knight Rises, it owes a lot to Logan. It doesn't hit that for me with the daughter stuff. It doesn't get to that level as much as it wants to. Um, because they play up the, the swan dynamic much more than the you know his true love versus a, a daughter he didn't know he had. So I guess they have different priorities. But I think this works better than Logan in that regard, honestly. I, I was with this. Once it's revealed who we know this chick really is, I, it worked for me. Because, Matt, you and I have fought over that movie. Go back and listen to that podcast. But I did not feel those same reservations about this that I did during that film. I hated the fact that in that movie... That character still ran around with claws and was screaming the entire fucking time. This character didn't do that. And I like the dynamic that these two had. I like I like this actress, honestly. I like this little girl. I think she's really good. I think she has good eye acting going on, which is harder to do than you people would think. I liked her a lot more than Logan. We, we've been doing too much agreeing, so I guess I had to come up with something that we was contentious. <laughs> so this where Bond uh, watched... Atomic Blonde, and we get pretty as close to a uh, as close to a one like, like it is as close to a one take stairwell fight as they could. There's some cuts, but this is he's Pierce Brosnan here just mowing people down with this machine gun. Yeah, he is. Yeah, they, I mean, they fucking John Wick the fuck out of these next five minutes. Uh huh. Yeah, but but it's, it's fucking awesome. Like what I love, they drop one grenade, he throws it back. The grenade. He drops five more, and he's like, oh shit. Uh, like and Bond, one thing Daniel Craig is vulnerable to is grenade shrapnel, because it's the second time in this movie he's been an explosion at his feet and he is unscathed. Yes, but look, he's James Bond. Yeah, he gets you know he gets hurt by bullets, but not by any type of explosion fucking whatsoever. Yeah, and you know who we haven't mentioned yet, and I want to give some mad props to in this because I didn't think anything of him in the previous films. You guys seem to like him more than I did. Ben Wishaw as Q. Yeah. And in, in, in a lot of these sequences, you know, and, and towards the end of the movie, like he's the one who knows what's going on with Bond more before anyone else does. I think he's great in this movie. And I, you know, Desmond Llewellyn, yes, he served his purpose for what he was doing. But I think more than any, I like Q more in this than I'd have in any other film. What's the most involved think, he's been in Craig's yeah. run? Unfortunately, yeah, I, though, I, it's at the expense of Money Penny, who gets nothing in this movie. 
I, I swear to God, she had more screen time in Venom 2, and she had more lines in Venom 2 than she did in this. You know what bugged me, and I'll bring it up now, is the way that they handle Lashana Lynch taking over 007. Being that, by the end of this movie, I felt, which one was it? Skyfall. Naomi Harris was a field agent. She was a damn good field agent until she shot James. I almost wish that with a five-year break, money penny, because Naomi Harris, I think, is just much more charismatic on screen. I would have loved to see her step in the role and go back in the field and earn her double O. I think that could have been a nice way to finish it off. I think the only reason they didn't is because she's systematically retired from field service. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still money penny. I get it. But being that she was set up already as a field agent, yeah, I think they could have gone that way. I just, I don't know. I, I love her presence so much more. Lashana, I enjoy. But as we talked about, they don't utilize her well enough, well, including best- here. Know, towards the end. Yeah, she's kind of just, you know, holding down the fort, but she does throw Orbachov into the uh, the nanobot pool. Because uh, yeah. not only is he a villain, he's also a racist. Jesus Christ. Did, okay, you want, yeah, we didn't do any reshoots. We didn't go back and rewrite. Bullshit. Just to throw out a random, obviously shot on a soundstage, fucking racist line out of nowhere. Ah, uh, I mean, dude's a dick. It's a bond, just, but just to suddenly fucking turn into some German I can wipe out your entire fucking race line from I don't know <laughs> like good for her for killing the asshole but you want to talk about out of place Bond sends Madeline and Matilda on a boat with uh, Nomi saying take care of them you know I'll be back the crows start oh yeah this, yeah this is the this moment I'm like alright th- yeah I'm like there's no coming back from this this is his, his last mission which you know I, I knew it was coming and I was I was perfectly not to Tell my thoughts. Because it was so obvious, I've always accepted it because I'll, yeah. I'll save for when we get to it. But basically, he has his final showdown with Safin. Gets shot a couple times. Like, right when he got shot yep. that, like, three or four times, I'm like, all right, he's fucking dead. Either he's going to bleed out or he'll go up with this island. And the one thing that got the biggest reaction in the theater was when he breaks his arm. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah same here. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and this is what I'm talking about when it comes to Fukunaga. I think a lot of the action scenes, um, you know, even though. Casino Royale was more down and gritty. They haven't really been as self-assured as Kerry Fukunaga has been in this movie. His action scenes, I think that's a great way of explaining it, is they're self-assured. And everything that he does in this movie has impact. And this fight, you know, it could be a run-of-the-mill, but these little moments here, like this breaking of the arm, it makes you cringe and you know it's coming. I mean, anybody who's seen any press for this movie and anybody who's seen that video of Daniel Craig welling up at the end of the shoot – they know what's going to happen here, and you, you're thinking about it, and you think maybe this could be it. He could die in this pool of water right here. I like that moment because I think it's a good consensus of the way I feel about Craig in this movie. I think it's just very, very well done. I think it's very well executed, and I think Craig, once again, is great in it. He injects him with the insurance policy, as he called it, to where yep. basically he has the virus now. So if he touches Madeline and Matilde, he will kill them. forgot to mention earlier, Q has a great line with Blofeld where he's like, it's a good thing you weren't actually brothers or you'd be dead too. <laughs> but yeah, so Bond is just, he's like, fuck, what do I do? He just kills him nonchalantly, just shoots him three, four times. Yeah, great. Again, self-assured, like it's, it, it just made an impact on me. And, you know, he talks to Q, he's like, look, I need you to put Madeline on the phone and... Okay, th- this goodbye. Given how much I did not care about the inspector, I was amazed at how much I was emotionally affected by this. A lot of it is Craig because he's pouring his heart out. But again, it's not. This could have been. I know a lot of people don't like this. 
But for me, this is the most human James Bond we've ever had. And if you were ever going to kill a Bond, this was the one to do. Because this story arc needed to end. And I think it works emotionally within the context of, of Craig's films. Because Casino Royale, you see how cold and damaged he is. He finds love and he watches her die. Basically, by that point, he becomes the Ian Fleming Bond, where he only lives for the work and the missions. In this movie, it's brought up multiple times that he's living an empty life. And you can kind of see that. He talks about, like, you know, I lived my life as an orphan when he's talking to Safin, and everyone I love has fucking died or or left me. So realizing that he's never going to have that life, it plays into the idea that Bond never got a chance. Finds love, he's got a family, it's immediately taken from him. So I think it's him accepting death because it's the ultimate tragedy. This is a character who can never be truly happy because it's not in his DNA. And he can never be that family man or settle down. So I think this is very, it's a very fitting end. And I'm so glad there's no ambiguity like that Dark Knight Rises bullshit. He's fucking dead. You cannot retcon this at all. And it is it is definitive. There, that was a great dissertation there, Matt. I gotta say, there was sobbing in my theater when this was going on. There was audible sobbing. Whether it was from that asshole who spilled a beer on me, I don't know. But it was going on. And I gotta say, I got a bit of a wet eye myself. And for somebody who has not liked Craig for the majority of these films, honestly, uh, even though the films were very well written, I, I have never liked him as Bond. Here, it affected me. Because this is a guy who is forced to face his consequences and you are seeing it in his eyes as this happens and again i want to give it to leah sado as well she's the one selling it now this could have gone you mentioned dark knight rises and we've mentioned nolan a lot of this retrospective but this could have gone nolan because you know i kind of got flashbacks to nolan movies because she's she's got wet eyes she's pleading with them she's watching it going on that was a very nolan-esque thing to do but I think it plays off better because I am feeling these these uh, consequences that Craig's doing. And also, I mentioned there was one track on this Zimmer score that I love. This is it right here when he's going down. Just walking back to my car, I had my headphones on and I was listening to it, and it affected me even then. I think all of this works for me. And the complaints I've seen about it, I, maybe it's just because I'm a casual Bond fan, not necessarily a, a massive Bond fan. Like I'm not hard, hardcore into it, but this really, really got me. So being that we're talking about Batman so much in the Dark Knight Returns as opposed to Dark Knight Rises, the entire book starts with Bruce Wayne in a car. And it's the line is, this would be a good death. I feel like here at the end of this, that's James realizing this. He's not going to get out of this without hurting somebody he loves and killing somebody he loves two people he loves. And. The acceptance of it, but also just the manner in which it's done is fitting for not just this Bond that we've gotten with Craig, but I think with Bond overall. I think it's really well done. I think him climbing out to see it, to kind of just see the sunset as the missiles are coming was fantastic. Now, to the asshole dick who in Sideshow Collectibles let your geek sideshow Facebook group decided to randomly post James Bond gets killed and gets killed by missiles in the last five minutes of the movie. Oh, you, sir, off. can eat a dirty ass. Oh. Like it was spoiled for me, not just that he got killed, but how and when. And that Fuck fucking that. sucked. But knowing that 
did not take away, did it take away the impact of it? Clearly. But I still appreciate it and actually respect the hell out of them doing it, going there for it. You know what? To relate it to something else, they handled it a whole fucking hell of a lot better than Han Solo. Somebody else was just like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to go out, but I'm going to go out by coming back. You know, um, they did this really well. And yeah, the moment with Leah Sado, who I haven't even, you know, I talked about, it, I liked her considerably more in this movie, but I haven't liked her other films and I've seen a whole heck of a lot of them, but I do think she excels here at the end. I think the emotion between the both of them really works. It should also be said too, that I saw this on an IMAX screen. I did not realize going in that there were IMAX scenes in this movie. I did not realize that there were scenes that were actually filmed for IMAX. I believe it was just the action scenes. And I think this one as well, but bigness, the, the epic scope of that screen and all of this going on, it just, ah, oh, it just gives me chills just thinking about it. Yeah. When I saw mine, it was the um, Dolby giant screen. So it's, it's the Dolby Atmos, but it's an IMAX size giant screen, but just in the traditional widescreen format, not the, not the boxy IMAX. Um, and yeah, fantastic, fantastic look, fantastic sound. Since IMAX doesn't doesn't calibrate their theaters in my area well, I've stopped going to IMAX, but Dolby does a great job, and it looks superb in the giant screen. So I was perfectly okay. I was okay. Like, I held it together. I, I didn't cry watching this movie. Let me let me preface my thoughts saying that. This was not Logan, where I, I just sat there in silence for five minutes uh, at the end. But they cut to M in the office. So the quote that he reads, the, the Jack London quote, that oh. is from You Only Live Twice. That, oh, fuck. that is the quote that is read in Bond's obituary when he's presumed dead and you only look twice. And I love it. Wow. It's a very simple line. It's not it's not a speech. This is not a Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan movie where they talk about it for 10 minutes. <laughs> it, it is to the point. They have a toast to James and he goes back to work. That's um, so fucking classy the way that they did this. Now, the, the part that almost got me was the last scene in the movie. They cut to the two of them driving on the road. And she goes, let me tell you a story about this man, his name was James, and they play We Have All the Time in the World. So I, I got to talk about that because I know, I know that was another controversial point, evoking that. So I think in Unimagined Secret Service, that's an ironic theme because they really didn't have all that time because she dies on their wedding. What it works here is that using that line in particular in the opening when they're, when they're in uh, Italy, you're demonstrating almost like this foreboding dread. Because if you know that movie, you know nothing's good, good is going to come from evoking it. And the twist here is that Bond was the one running out of time. Uh, the driving away, his sacrifice means it's a genuine use of the song because he has ensured the two of them are going to have all the time in the world. So I think that the, the poetry of that is what got me. But yeah, and credits roll right after that. And we do get the James Bond will return if you sat through the credits. <laughs> I heard about this later. Um, <laughs> it was a little weird that they would go here. Well, I have theories about that. Well, I will talk about it when I break down my thoughts on the movie. But I did think, I don't know if that was a reference, another reference that they decided to insert, or they actually he actually is going to be back. I'm surprised he didn't say 007 will be back. That's what yeah. I was kind of expecting after what we'd seen. But I yeah, that, was, that was a little weird. So, yeah, after a year and a half of thinking about this movie, it's finally here. We talked about it. And it's time to give our overall thoughts. So I'll ask the question twofold on a scale of one to 10. And was this movie worth the wait for both of you gentlemen? I, I would like to go to Adam first on this. Okay. So my score, I was looking at scores for not just the Bond movies overall, but specifically the Craig era of films. And oh boy, do they run the gamut. 
was genuinely and I was, you know, I, I earned my nervousness for this movie. Not a big fan of Skyfall from a story perspective at all. Couldn't stand Spectre for much of anything. So I got a lot of reason to to doubt this movie. I thought this was going to be, I know I mentioned Harrison Ford a little bit ago. I thought this was going to be Indiana Jones 4. I thought that's what I, what Craig was coming back for. And I'm really glad to say that's not what this was. I walked into this movie with the fucking ending spoiled for me. And I still really enjoyed this movie. The opening threw me for a loop. It wasn't what I expected. The opening song and title sequence wasn't what I expected. Where they took James Bond, where they took Madeline, threw them fucking offing Blofeld after five minutes of screen time. Not what I expected. And to close off, you could say closing off a franchise, but at least closing off the Daniel Craig portion of the franchise in ways that would still surprise a regular Bond viewer. That really does something. I got some issues throughout this movie a little bit. Like most James Bond movies, there's plot holes that you could drive a car and Aston Martin through. Of course there is. But separate from that, I don't think the villains are extremely well done. Didn't care for Rami Malek, which is a damn shame. I felt that Christoph Waltz was utterly wasted. But having the core group of, I don't know, the group of heroes, the, the Bond Five back together, they did really, really well. The new addition of LaShawn Lynch, I really liked her even though I wish she was utilized better. For a send-off, my wife asked me, you know, have they ever finished a James Bond story? Have they ever killed one off? Have they ever let one go? And I said, no. And it's amazing that they did it and pulled off a ending of a story the first time without fucking it up. Some of the scores I've seen out there, I don't know what the hell they were watching because it wasn't the same movie I watched. I don't think it's the high point of Daniel Craig's uh, films, but I do think it's the second best. I could watch Casino Royale. I could watch, I don't know, maybe a recap of Spectre and write into this and, and be quite happy closing it off because I think it, it's really, really well done. I'm interested to see where they go next, but I'm glad Craig came back. I'm glad this movie existed. I'm glad he came back to do one more. I'm glad that I got a chance to see it in a the movie theater and that we were able to wait, able to go do it, see it in this experience, and enjoy it the way that I did. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with seven and a half. I think there's stronger Bond movies out there. Obviously, there's a whole lot of worse one out there. But it's. I'm hoping I can go see it again. I wanted to see it one more time before we did this. I didn't get a chance. But as opposed to so many other Craig films, this is one that, even at two hours and forty minutes, I will be happy to sit down and watch again. I really will. Seven and a half. Uh, Garrett, my beloved co-host for all these years, um, I, I have never been as eagerly anticipating your thoughts on a movie once I had seen it than I am right now. So I will I will open the airwaves to you. I remember when you came out and you the very first thing you said was, Garrett, have you seen it yet? Have you seen it yet? <laughs> I had to say, no, not yet. Let me just say that if you go back and listen to our retrospective, you will hear that the Bond films I respond to the most are the ones that do something different, do something that is out of the norm for this character instead of just another adventure. There's a lot of plots that have to do with blood in this movie. I think the new blood they bring in to work to do this movie was a much needed injection after just the artsy shit that Sam Mendes tried laying on us. I think Carrie Joe Fukunaga and Phoebe Waller-Bridge 
they brought something that I hadn't seen in this franchise for so long, maybe ever, honestly. And I responded very, very highly to it. There are problems with this movie. The more you think about it, the more it will fucking bundle your nerves and you will want to hit a wall. The motivations behind Rami Malek, terrible, the more you think about it. But Rami Malek himself, I like him as a villain. I think in the build-up to Spectre, all we were told was it's a perfect love letter to the Bond franchise. Bullshit. I think this is the perfect love letter to anybody who likes any era of Bond. My father, God bless his soul, is no longer with us. And I guarantee he would not have liked the majority of the Craig era, but this movie he would have really responded to. Because there are things in here that I really think he would have liked. For example, we didn't even mention it, but the fucking subtle reference to the gun barrel sequence in this movie, so fucking great and i'm not even a huge fan of that stuff i'm not a fan of those kinds of references but i looked at that i was like holy shit that was perfect um i think as i said earlier i think the fact that they made this the bond film that makes him face his consequences it forces him to face his consequences i think that bit of writing is what works for me in this movie despite the overlength despite the plot holes this is, God, Casino Royale is still up there as my top. This is easily my second favorite. This is a 9 out of 10. You get that for plot holes, and it is a glorious love letter. And kudos to Craig. Never thought I'd say it, but kudos to Craig for going out on such a high note. And uh, this is the perfect way to end an era that was definitely has definitely had its ups and downs, but it ended at a high, high peak. So 9 out of 10 for me. Man. So for me, I think a lot of people were wondering what I was going to think of this movie because of how audacious some of these decisions were. And I think if I was to suffice my thoughts, it is I would raise my martini to this production team. I think more so than any other run, I think Daniel Craig's tenure has resonated with me the most. And that's amazing considering two of the movies I I don't care for, but it is the most bold step the franchise has ever taken but for me it's also the truest to what james bond is for me i think it's very disrespectful for bond fans to say if you're a real bond fan you're gonna hate this movie because everyone gets something different out of this character oh that's fucking gatekeeping coming into play Ah, fuck those people i'm sorry go ahead yep so i consider myself pretty well read as a lot of listeners will know and there's very pertinent reasons why that Heracles is the final mission for Bond. So if you know your Greek mythology, you know Hercules uh, and Heracles was the Greek name for the hero that was Hercules. And Heracles did his 12 labors. And the legend chimes with this movie. In the Heracles story, he's given a poison shirt that burns his skin which is basically the bioweapon that kills anyone it touches. Once he gets the shirt, he builds his own funeral, and he burns to death, just like Bond voluntarily allowed himself to die in that explosion. And when he died, his soul went to Olympus to live on forever. And I think that's a great salvation of Daniel Craig's run. I think this will live on forever. This will be eternal. And that's the message this movie is delivering, that doing something this much of a stark turn that this franchise has never done. They've never emphatically killed off James Bond. Um, and we're always told he's going to live on. But this shows that you can do it, and the character will live on. It will persevere as it always has. So where does that bring me overall in the movie? 
I don't think this is the best of the Craig films just because I find so much of the villain's motives to be muddled and confusing. But that's really my biggest complaint. For a near three-hour movie, and Lord knows, Garrett, we've watched some long fucking movies. We watched all of Nolan's movies last year, and some of those I had to get up and take a break. Tenet felt like a lifetime compared to this movie. Casino Royale and Skyfall are neck and neck for me. This is a very close third. Like, I hold those three movies in very high esteem. And, uh, you know, everyone gives their own hot takes. This movie definitively for me. If I wasn't there already, this leaves for me all the other bonds in the dust. Craig is far and away my number one at this point, and it's not even close. So I wrote down my score. I'm right in the middle of you two almost. I'm in an eight on ten for this. I gave Casino Royale and Skyfall a nine respectively for each and i can't quite go as high but for a movie that i've seen three times and i've walked out all three times saying i'll gladly watch this again that is the ultimate sign of, of respect so yeah well worth the wait if you ask my opinion and i hope the podcast was well worth the wait for those of you who have been eagerly anticipating the movie as much as we have so like the 12 labors that i talked about we have done 27 james bond movies <laughs> jesus christ <sighs> So, oh boy. so obviously we could talk about this forever, but I kind of wanted to close on, on a couple of points, you know, because all, all of us, we've given our scores. You can go back and listen to them. But if you had to recommend, like, what do you consider? It doesn't have to be your top five, but what are the movies throughout the series that you would strongly endorse as being top tier Bond flicks for you guys? Whoever wants to go first and rattle off their favorites. Go ahead. All right. If I were to rate my favorites, I had to think about it a lot after watching this movie. My top Five would be Casino Royale, No Time to Die, Goldfinger, From Russia with Love, and Goldeneye. After that, it's another tier. I have Die Another Day on that tier just because I just find that to be just ridiculous fun. I really enjoyed Honor Majesty's Secret Service for what it was. And Octopussy, I really enjoyed. But, you know, those are my top. And, and going through this franchise, and it, it's weird. <laughs> I mentioned that I had watched Spectre in preparation for this. I also watched the Mission Impossible franchise in the last couple of months. And just thinking about that franchise and its way of doing action as it relates to the spy genre, it owes a lot to this franchise. This, this franchise, I appreciate it so much in going through it with you guys because it was about more than just who was playing Bond. It was about the action. It was about the stunts and watching the evolution of this from – you know, it trying to be like Star Wars and Moonraker and everything else. It was, it's been really, really fun to do. But those would be my top tiers. So one final question for you then. Yeah. Who, who's your personal favorite Bond? If you had to pick one. Oh, my God. That's tough. Um, if I were to go off sheer magnetism and sheer presence, I'll go ahead and go with, uh, oh, boy. I'll go with Connery, then Brosnan, and then Craig. Because I think Craig really brought something in this movie that I was not expecting. Uh, I was not expecting to like him at all. I was like, look, we get it. It's your last fucking Bond film. Just go away. And I'm watching this, and as it was going on, I was like, fuck, I don't want him to go away. Like, they actually made me care for him. So, yeah, I would go Connery, Brosnan, and then Craig. But Craig jumped up because of this film. All right. So, Adam. Obviously, yes, I've tracked all of our scores just for continuity purposes. And, you know, having a child at home, I have nothing better to fucking do some nights. <laughs> um, so I kind of know what your favorites are. But, like, if you had to, like, what are your five? Um, all right. So if I'm going to give five, uh, you know what? I almost want to do one for each one. But if I'm going to tell somebody, here's five James Bond movies to watch. Obviously, Casino Royale. The Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Goldeneye. 
Goldfinger. Um, I'm going to say You Only Live Twice. And this one may be a little controversial for some people, but On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think that one is so freaking underrated that I really have a good time with it. But I also love The Spy. I'm, I'm going six. The Spy Who Loved Me also. I know I think I like that one more than all of us, but yeah, that's one that I would watch all over again. Fuck. You know, it's been almost two years since we did since we did some of these. I'm going to have to go and uh, watch some since I'll be at home for a little bit. So let me say that I think my, my top five, my top five is, is very th- – there's a couple controversial ones. I, w- I would definitely include Casino Royale and Skyfall. Those are in my top five. I have For Much of a Love. And then I have two Roger Moore films. Uh, <laughs> I have Live and Let Die, which is a personal favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the villain collection, and th- there's some stuff in there that I just love. And then if you can get past his age and his appearance, I think Octopussy delivers on a lot of the things that I love in James Bond. They get, and and we have a we had an older Bond girl, which broke a yeah. lot of trends. I just have a blast at that movie. No Time to Die is definitely in my top ten. Th- this is going to be the one that I, I struggle to rank. But yeah, I think for the for the and most it, part, and it's so new. I mean, you you got a great score watching it three times in like four days. Yeah, I know that's like still that's coming t- out that that's high. Ten hours right there. But but yeah, and and I've said my Craig's my favorite Bond. So I'll you know if I had to rank the Bonds as far as personal favorites, Daniel Craig and Roger Moore are my top two. Connery's third, Brosnan's fourth, Lazenby's fifth, Dalton's sixth, and Connery and Roger Moore. The reason why I have Moore over Connery is Roger Moore doesn't have like his lesser movies i think are lesser than connery's never say never again notwithstanding that's a piece of shit but roger moore's lesser films are, are worse than connery's lessers but roger moore doesn't have those peaks and valleys in his performance that connery did post goldfinger and I, I just love watching roger moore like i think he's very dapper classy and he overcomes that thing of like free rise only showed oh he could play a tougher bond he could play the harder edge bond so that's kind of my rankings of them and for mine it oh seeing this was and this was tough especially going through this because i was you know able to reevaluate a lot but it's i'm still going to go with pierce brosnan you never forget your first and uh i mean going back to remington steel he was it for me man i mean my see the top it almost depends on mood you know what do i want to watch you know if, if i'm in the mood for something a little more campy i'm going to go with pierce brosnan because i want to watch goldeneye if I'm in a little more of a, of a rough and tough tumble mood, I'm going to put on Casino Royale. So I'm going to like Craig a little bit more, but I'm going to go Brosnan, Connery, Craig, and that can change day by day. I mean, it really can. Then I'm going to go more just be his, as you said, the consistency upon his films is actually really quite well. And his, the way that he, his portrayal of Bond is, is consistent, but he still grows with the character and he really delivers every single time. Lazenby, I mean, shit, Lazenby could easily be second or third. He put a great fucking movie out, but we only get the one. Uh, and, th- and that's, fuck, that's a disappointment. Because as we sit and did it, that was a damn good movie. But yeah, that's where I'm sitting on it. Well, speaking of sitting on it, before we close out, I'll do something fun. When the show gets released, I will put up the Excel spreadsheet I have that tracks all of our scores. Because I think it'll be fun. You know, not everyone has the time to go back and listen. So basically what I've done is I took all of our scores average them out so the movies are in a ranked order basically Ooh. so I, I, they're all weighted so i can tell everyone casino royale is the highest scored movie because it got nines across the board so it's weighted score nice. is a nine and then we have two movies that are tied for the worst with a weighted score of 2.33333 uh 
I won't I won't reveal what those are, but there are a lot of ties. You'll see our breaks. But this has been a labor of love from the three of us this entire retrospective. I hope we delivered because I know this is something a lot of bingers have wanted for a long time. And I'm just glad this movie didn't suck. To be yeah, I would have been pissed. I would have been really disappointed, but pissed off if I spent three hours in a movie theater, Dolby Atmos ticket prices, plus my fucking popcorn and icy if I walked out and it sucked. And it, yeah. we've had to wait so long and, you know, we don't like ending these series on a, on a low note. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there will be more Bond films to come. That could be a discussion in and of itself. But we got we to gotta close up shop here. So much like MI6, we got to get back to work. Adam, I know you were reluctant to do this series with us, but much like David Craig, you came in, did a lot of shit, stepped your game up. You did an awesome job throughout this entire series. <laughs> Thank you much. Rough and tumble time, but we made it through. We're a little older, a little more scars, a little bit more of an old dog, but absolutely. So thank you all, everyone. Till the next James Bond film, heck, until the next retrospective, which is coming very soon. I won't say what it is. Has this podcast gotten longer or have you just gotten shorter? Thank you, everyone. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. This never happened to the other fellow. Voice narration done by Adam. Edited by Garrett. He always did have an inflated opinion of himself. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. There's a name to die for. <sighs> it's a waste of good scorch. Bond wakes up the next morning. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I was just gonna say that when they shoot this fucking car, are we at that? We're at the point when the no, car shot up, right? Or no, because there's a little bit. Okay, go ahead. There's a couple things I really want to talk about. I love how Blofeld call, calls her phone and is making it sound like. She was oh, in on yeah. it.
Um, Adam, oh, wait, guys, guys, can I, can I, can I, I said at the beginning that uh, I said yesterday that I had to talk about my theatrical going experience because I just put oh, that please, in real please. quick. I'm going to edit it yeah, in. Go ahead. All right. So. <laughs> listening to her stuff that she's not going to be fucking Sandra Massey. She's not going to be Tina Turner. She's not going to belt anything out. Like this is, this is just her style, you yeah. know? So I, I was prepared for it and I, I was right with this song and every beat of this, like I, I really like the song a lot, but then again, I love the aha song and you guys love the fucking garbage song. So let's, let's continue the streak <laughs> of not agreeing on the fucking song. I knew it was going to fucking happen. I fucking I, knew that you asked. I love the aha song. I hate the test mode song. <laughs> You guys are just gonna leave me on that fucking ledge to die. <laughs> no time to listen to the fucking song. I like it. I just didn't love it. But like I said, I've listened to it actually quite a few times since, which is kind of cool. Who the fuck is Sherna Massey? Or <laughs> Shirley Bassey? Yeah. I'm sorry, Shirley. That's it. All right. Let me say it again so I can fucking edit this in because this song, this fucking podcast isn't getting edited enough. Shirley Bassey. Okay, go ahead. Unfortunately, though, it's at the expense of Money Penny, who gets nothing in this movie. I, I swear to God, she had more screen time in Venom Two, and she had more lines in Venom Two than she did this. I gotta go see Venom Two. I didn't know no, she was. No, in. Oh, that's no, right. No, you she do shrieked. not. Fuck. Listen to me. Uh, no, you um, do not. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.